and you'll be stuck with us. So thank you so much. And Scott, I'm going to record all this again because that sucked. Ass. Um, <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to record again. We're going to we're going to start over at one minute. Port the posse. Uh, some of my favorite channels on YouTube, like YouTube, <laughs> YouTube, <laughs> priest. like you on. <laughs> all right. I think I made the okay? uh, hold open. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Some of my favorite channels on Utah. <laughs> oh, you did it again. Oh, my God. YouTube. Oh, Come on. Man. Okay, Boomer. Woo. You can get it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Duh. I keep waiting for TJ because he's like, he has that deep in thought look. <laughs> That's just the eyes glazed over look because I'm tired. <laughs> tired as tired as shit. All right. Well, that's, <laughs> that's the best time. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 45 of the Plastic Posse. I'm here tonight with two of my co-hosts, Scott Gentry out of Utah and TJ Haller out of D.C., and we are super excited to be here tonight. We're missing two of our folks, Doug and Ivan. Unfortunately, they couldn't make it, but that's okay. You'll have Ivan in the interview later on, so that's awesome. You know, with that, how, how are you guys doing tonight? Scott, what's up? Oh, I am doing great. I had a great weekend. We'll talk about it here in a minute. Uh, Jim Bates came out to Salt Lake City. A bunch of us hung out. We went up to Hill Air Force Base, had a great time. So yeah, doing great. Doing great. Getting some modeling done. And yeah, it's uh, it's been a lot of fun. TJ, how are you doing, man? Um, I'm doing pretty good. Um, I was not on the main part of the last uh, episode, unfortunately. I think I had um had work obligations uh, going on. So, but I don't have a whole lot to talk about since then. I have not done very much modeling at all. Combination of uh, moving all the stuff in my basement and dropping my Sherman and having to fix it kind of killed my mojo on that. But I did go to our local show, the Model Classic. I'll, I'll go ahead and talk about that real quick while it's on me. But uh, that was really fun. I hung out with uh, the Model Geeks, hung out with our pal Jackson, uh, met some other people. Martin uh, Drayton from out your way, uh, Scott, he was in yep. town, just happened to be in town uh, for work. And he cruised on by, so that was cool. And I got to see him. Um, I won some awards. It was pretty cool. But the best part was my daughter, Natalie, won with her M5 Sherman Tune Tank, won her category, and then also won the best juniors, which uh, was pretty rad. It's probably the one of the coolest experiences um, in modeling is, is seeing her win because she didn't understand what was happening. Uh, when she won her first award, they called her name and she looked over at my wife and I and she's like, is that me? I'm like, well, that's your name, isn't it? <laughs> and she ran up there and, uh, and, and got her award. And <laughs> she does this thing where she is really excited but doesn't want to show it because that's she's a kind of reserved person that she i wonder where she gets that from and um she was doing like this like half smile as she's walking up there clearly very proud of herself and then you know we sat through the whole wars it took forever 
And then they, of course, did Best Juniors and they called her name and she just was standing there. I'm like, oh, they just called your name again. She's like, what? <laughs> like, that's you. you. You need to go up there. Move. You won. <laughs> best. And everyone's like clapping and cheering. And, and uh, it was really cool. And uh, she was so proud of herself. She was taking pictures of it with her phone and nice. she has Snapchat. So she put it in her little, holding her little metal. She has like in her Snapchat stories and um, she took it to school to show everyone. So it was really cool. It was it was pretty neat. That's awesome. How cool is that? It's uh, like you said, I don't think there's anything better than, you know, seeing your son or your daughter uh, get to experience that and see the smile on their face. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I mean, I don't even care about anything I won there. Th- that was that was it. That's the only thing that matters. So what's next on her bench? I don't know. Um, you know, afterwards, because she's built a couple models, but this is what well, I think this is the first you guys have seen it. I, and mm-hmm. I've sent you pictures of it and she painted camouflage on it and did, did a really good job. And um, I asked her, I was like, you know, do you want to build more models? Like, you're clearly very good at it. And she said, yeah. And I'm like, well, what do you want to build? And she's like, well, I don't know. What is there? I'm like, there's literally models of everything, sweetie. So <laughs> you just tell me what you're interested in and we'll build models together. I mean, she's like, oh, okay. And that's ben, kind of as far as she got. So Bandai Cup of Noodles, man. Yeah, because you know, it's funny because they love they love ramen, especially <laughs> those little ramen cups, which I'm just like, yeah, there's there's like better ramen out there. We can go get good ramen. <laughs> <laughs> or a Pikachu figure. I mean, those are cool, too. Yeah, so she's built uh, the little bear guys. Oh, nice. The little Bondi bear guys. She's built a couple of those in the past. And I think this uh, Toon Tank was the first thing she actually sat down and like painted. I made sure she was doing it right because she was using the airbrush. So, but she's kind of a natural. She's artistic anyways. Like she loves to draw and paint paintings and make stuff out of clay. So I'm you know trying to nudge her towards it, but I'm not going to force it. But she nice. sounds like she wants to like get more involved in it, which I'm you know all for, of course. You should take her. You should take her models to Nats if you can fit them in your bag. Take one and enter it. Oh yeah, it's 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 definitely coming. Nice, JB. What about you? You've been crazy busy. Ooh, I'm in the same boat as TJ. I haven't touched much. I got the stug to about ninety five percent, and I posted some pictures online. So I I really enjoyed the feedback I got from that. You know, lots of good lots of good chatter around that. Uh, you know, that's that's the most fun is is interacting with everybody. Outside of that, it's been really slow. I've been working like crazy lately, just no time. And I do have to apologize to IPMS members. I skipped two meetings that I should have attended for my office position. But, uh, you know, unfortunately work came first. So I got to catch up with the folks around that, but we're making really good progress. Um, and we have some great announcements coming out. You know, I'll just do a quick plug. We we established the National Contest Steering Committee. And for those that don't understand the nationals, you know, really every year it's it's put on by a local club. But we're looking to hopefully, you know, formalize it more at the national level to give that support to local clubs. And, you know, hopefully we get new clubs bidding and bringing the nationals to parts of the country that it's never been before. So exciting news coming. Uh, we're, we just stood up the committee. We're doing a little bit of work behind it to get some of those resources built. And then we're going to be having some meetings with interested clubs for the 2024 and, and other future nationals to have that discussion around what are the bid parameters, what are the requirements for facilities, and you know, really just helping educate everyone on the process and making it as smooth as possible. And hopefully, again, we see the nationals going to more places in the country that it's never been before and engaging more of the membership. So that's been really exciting. Uh, like I said, I haven't gotten too much on the bench. I do have a few small projects I'm working on. Nats is right around the corner. Those need to be done. So those will be cranked out and yeah, it's, it's going good. Otherwise, I mean, I look forward to recording every other week. I think uh, the most sometimes, cause it's been, 
it's been tough lately and I, I don't want to, I don't want to spoil the topic because I think that's what we're going to discuss later is, you know, getting through these times where we don't have uh, the ability to get to the bench. And what are those things that really uh, keep you motivated, keep you happy and uh, yeah, just, just make the hobby what it is. So, yeah, so that's enough about me. I'm going to turn it over to TJ to talk about one of our proud partners. We are proud to partner with Tankcraft. They are a fabulous company that makes the highest quality products. They have some incredible new products and some incredibly cool stuff they will be announcing very soon. In the meantime, check out tankcraft.com and see how one of their pro modeler mats and one of their awesome aluminum glue bases really improve your workbench. You guys see those new, uh, their new tracks, the 3D printed uh, KV tracks they came out with. And those things are sweet. Yeah, I'm just waiting for the Tamiya KV2 to get here so I can get a package deal for crying out loud. I think Tamiya needs a new shipping line. Their containers <laughs> seem to get lost between <laughs> between here and there. You know, we're all like, where's our Hellcats? Where's our KVs? I think my feed for the last week has been every other post is a Hellcat, which (laughs) isn't a bad thing. Finally getting in uh, people's hands here in the States. Yeah, and I got to give a shout out to Jackson, one of our close friends that we had on last time. He's doing 3D work already on it. He's got light guards made, and I know he has plans to do more. He has access to a vehicle to the museum you've been to, I think, in Virginia, right, TJ? Mm-hmm. And he, vol- he volunteers there. Yeah, so he has close access to that. And it's it's really great because he's showing, you know, he shares a lot of his research on the M18 research group for the Tamiya Kit on Facebook. And he also has a Cults 3D profile and has some really affordable STLs for, for people to download and print. So he's on the M18. I'm super excited. And there's also some 3D printed track options out there. And then the the decal options are pretty sweet as well. Sorry to go on a M18 rant. I've resisted buying it, but I don't know how much more I can do that. <laughs> your uh, your resistance is almost gone, huh? Almost it's, used up. It's futile. I, you know, may the fourth <laughs> be with us all in that case. Well, yeah. I, I have one um, that our good friend Grant Mayberry sent to me, which is like super nice. Didn't even ask for it. He, vol- he voluntarily gave it to me because that's the type of person Grant is. And I got some deaf model decals and a metal barrel. And uh, Steve hooked me up with the, some stowage. And I also, you know, our other buddy Steve, Steve Baker, posted something about um, tracks. Some 3D printed tracks. <sighs> I could less than 30 bucks ship. I'm just, <laughs> I'm like, you know, even if they suck. Okay. Um, I went ahead and ordered those too. They're coming from Poland, so they'll be here eh, you know, a little longer than I like, but I don't plan on getting on that anytime soon. So, And he started assembling them. They looked pretty crisp. Yeah. I mean, the, the you couldn't be the price. That's yeah, pretty cheap, and they look really nice. So You wonder how they make any money, for crying out loud. The aftermarket I was jonesing for was that those uh, see-through intake grates for the rear panel on the, oh, the Hellcat. Man, those look so nice. Maybe uh, we can get Jackson to model some of those up, have a domestic source. Who is, we'll this, who is this Jackson kid? <laughs> Coming out kidding. of nowhere like a like yeah. a wrecking ball. Grizz, move on over. There's a new Top Gun in town. <laughs> That's right. That's new right. Gun El- Gun. Elbowed El- chisel dizzle right out of the way, man. Oh man. You Good know, John. Great. Speaking of speaking of to me, I just got I got to stop and just glow about these Tamiya LP paints. Man, the more I use them, the more, I mean, you know, I just love them. You know, I love all the acrylic lacquers, but man, these things dry so fast and the paint goes on so smooth and, and the pricing, I mean, I'm getting them at my local hobby shop for, you know, two thirds of what their acrylic colors go for. I can't say enough about them. They're just fantastic paints. 
Yeah, I would agree too. I've had the opportunity to use them on the Sherman Mark III, the New Zealand one, and they are gorgeous. I think the biggest you know benefit from my perspective is is really the performance after you sprayed it, where it's it's like that eggshell finish, which I like. Uh, you know, eggshell is in the sheen, not the texture, and they are super nice. They dry super fast, super durable, and you can mix them with the XF line. And like you said, Scott, they're super cheap. I picked them up at Colpar here. I think they were like less than 250 for a bottle, which is significantly cheaper than the acrylic alternative. You know, I was cutting mine with Mr. Leveling Thinner and it's sprayed on smooth as glass and I look forward to using them more. Again, if you're using lacquer paints or any paints for that matter, highly recommended to use a booth and or a mask. There's your OSHA reminder. You don't need any safety incidents. All right. Well, it's time to send a shout out to the Posse Outriders. These are listeners who support the Posse by becoming Patreon contributors. If you'd like to support the Triple P and become an Outrider, it's really easy. Just head on over to our Patreon page, uh, www.patreon.com forward slash plastic Posse podcast. And you can set up a recurring donation there. You can donate any amount you would like. And this support helps us to offset the cost of bringing you the Triple P. Posse Outriders get early access to episode drops, early news on upcoming events, and access to PMs with all of us here on the Posse crew. We've had such a response to our Patreon page that we've created uh, three different tiers you can choose from. Posse Outriders, which um, starts at just a dollar a month, get early access to episode drops early news on upcoming events, and access to PM, each of us here on the Posse Crew. Posse Foreman, that tier starts at $5 a month, gets these benefits, plus access to social events at upcoming shows. And after an initial training period, you're going to get some free Posse swag. And our top tier, Deputy Marshals, which is $10 a month, they're going to get all of these benefits for both of those tiers, plus even cooler swag after their training period, and also a chance to become a part of a future Triple P live stream or podcast. So having said all of that, the Posse Outriders for episode 45 are, starting with our top tier, our awesome Deputy Marshals, we have Mark Bradley, Zach Pease, Joel Munson, Eric Brubaker, David Brian Bridges, a.k.a. DB Scale Model Studio, Jared Cow, J.C. Osborne, Mike Talley, Steve Baker, Bruce the Model Noob, Grant Mayberry, and Rick Cooper. Next, we have our posse foremen. We have Mr. Grizz, Rob Burnside, a.k.a. Red Beach One Studios, Jeremy Moore, the voice of Bob, Steve Munsell, a.k.a. Value Gear Head Honcho, Matthew Johnston, John Vitkus, Jamie Stokes, Craig Jarbo, Mike Bird, Jeremy Elliott, Mediocre Middle-Aged Modeler, Dan Knopfel, Eric DeGleish, and Eric Semmelmayer. And lastly, but certainly not least, we have our Posse Outriders. We've got Neil, Jackson, Simon, Martin, Chris, Lee, Robert, Brian, Matthew, Paul, David, Ethan, Steve, and Jamie. Man, that's a mouthful. Well done, deputies. We really appreciate your support. Thanks to everybody out there uh, supporting uh, what we do. We we really, really do appreciate it. Yeah, I'd just like to echo Scott's comments. Thank you so much. Every name on that list means a lot to us. You're certainly not only our supporters, but our friends, and we hope to see you at a future show. If you're at the Omaha Nats, please stop by and say hi. Shoot a message beforehand. We'll catch you outside of show hours as well. We're here to chat, get to know you, and and know you more than just a, just a name. And, and again, thank you from the bottom of my heart for your support. You know, you can also make a one-time donation to the Posse via PayPal. 
To do this, just go to our website, elasticpossepodcast.buzzsprout.com. In the upper right-hand corner, just click that little heart icon, and then you can donate any amount you'd like. You certainly don't have to donate, but we really do appreciate it. We also appreciate if you leave us a positive review and give us five stars. This will help the posse get out to more people interested in scale modeling podcasts. And if you're on YouTube, please stop by the Plastic Posse YouTube channel and subscribe. We're just spinning up that content, hope to get a lot more created, and certainly have a lot from the IPMS National. So please go on and subscribe. John, what level of Patreon do they need if they want an autographed picture of TJ? Oh, man. I'm at a loss for words. That's that's uber special. I mean... I got no from TJ. I thought I would get something. I mean, I thought he'd put on lipstick and kiss the picture and then give it over. Just a reminder, the Posse is just one of several scale modeling podcasts out there. As you guys all know, we're a member of a group of great podcasts. And if you'd like to see a list of some of these other podcasts, plus some other social media creators, just head on over to modelpodcasts.com and you're going to find links to the other podcasts and the other creators there. Appreciate Stuart up at Scale Model Podcast for putting that together. We also wanted to remind you there's lots of ways to interact with the Posse. You can send us an email email at plasticpossepodcast at gmail.com. Of course, we're on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash plastic posse. You can find us on Instagram at plastic posse podcast. Our Twitter handle is at posse podcast. And on YouTube, our channel is just plastic posse podcast. TJ, Doug's not here. Uh, do we have uh, any feedback to talk about? We do. We got a, a couple pieces here. So I'll, um, I'll start with this one. This is a message to both us at the Posse and uh, Mojo. Um, it says, hello, Posse and Mojo. I recently listened to episode 43 of the Triple P and episode 62 of PMM. And uh, the Triple P featured an interview with the mini painter and YouTuber Lila Mev, uh, the mini witch and episode 62 of P of a uh, Mojo included a comment about uh, military miniature society of Illinois, MMSI, the annual show, which is primarily a figurist show. If I understand correctly, you do understand that correctly. Uh, I primarily consider myself a sci-fi. What if trash slash scratch bash builder? At least that's what I aspire to. I watch a number of YouTubers from across the scale model and mini painting and diorama building spectrum. And I'm always a bit flummoxed when an expert in one corner of the broader hobby does not know about a technique that is basic in another corner. For example, seeing a scratch builders, you using a CA kicker, which is, is a cyanoacrylate kicker, like makes your uh, super glue cure instantly if anyone was curious or a spray, bo- spray bottle gunpla builders have been using high quality tongues and micro chisels for a while because adding panel lines is a big part of detailing in gundam if you're doing more than out of the box meanwhile military kit builders are still using our one size fits all scribers that makes a v-shaped groove i encourage all of us to branch out to the other corners of the hobby keep up the great work um, this is from Raphael shelton from oak ridge tennessee and i agree with all of his sentiments I like to consider myself a pretty well-rounded modeler. I only build in a couple of things, but I'm familiar with uh, uh, all the different genres. And like him, I, I watch, if you're building something or painting something on YouTube, I'm probably, probably going to watch it, even if I have no interest in doing it myself. So yeah, that's good. It's good stuff. Yeah, it's a good point. Some of my favorite channels over on YouTube are either from other quote unquote genres or they're like Boile Hobby Time, where he's combining elements from a whole bunch of, you know, different genres. 
And it's always really interesting to watch. I love it. And then, of course, you guys out there that are listening to us, you know that we are not genre specific. You know, one of the things we want to do is break down barriers in between different types of of work, because at the end of the day, we're all doing the same thing. Yeah, Scott, you stole my thunder there. I was going to mention Boile Hobby. That is a really great example of someone that's, you know, merging scale modeling with, you know, electronics, with sci-fi, with dioramas, and really does it in a professional way. I love his videos. I actually watch a lot of them over and over again, and uh, they're very inspiring. He's also out of the Denver area, so I might try to connect with him and see if we can get him on, on the channel because he's, uh, he's, he's, he's great. His videos are, dare I say, soothing. So I, I really enjoy watching them. <laughs> Well, and I don't know about you guys, but I mean, you know, you talked about Lila. That interview with her was so much fun. It's awesome to have that kind of, I don't want to say fresh, but, you know, kind of different perspective compared to, you know, guys that we normally talk about sort of in our quote unquote own corners of the hobby. All right. Another piece of feedback we have from Lynn I'm going to read is, hello, guys. As always, I love the podcast. Keep up the good work. Thank you. I know several of you have purchased 3D printers. 3D printing for the hobby has exploded. Totally agree. I have always wanted to do sci-fi subjects in 35th, but finding figures and accessories has been hard. Since 3D printing has become a cottage industry, maybe you could do an episode highlighting some of the makers that are out there, as well as what listeners want to buy. 100% agree. You know, we mentioned Jackson a little bit earlier. He's creating content for Colts 3D. So Colts 3D is an excellent website where you can find you know, a lot of content from creators that is kind of in that, it's honestly like a freelancing site where they've had their designs up and you can download them. But I love the idea. Continuing, I would kill for a line of alien style Marines in various figure sets with some value gear accessories or 120th scale accessories for Mac kits. Generic sci-fi stowage scaled for Star Wars Legion or Warhammer would be awesome. Sci-fi is increasing in popularity, but aside from lighting sets and a little photo etch, the aftermarket products seem to be lagging. I would agree. As always, great job on the podcast. You guys have a talent for bringing great interviews to the table and really letting the listeners know what's going on in the hobby. Take care. Lynn Young. Thanks so much, Lynn. We really appreciate it. Scott's been delving into 3D. TJ, I'll kick it over to you if you have any comments around what Lynn talked about. You know, what's what's the potential and, and do you see yourself maybe integrating 3D with your Mac uh, at some point in the future? Yeah, if someone can make some uh, 120 to scale stuff. Um, I know, me personally, I'm not at the level of designing my own stuff and don't really have that much interest in it because it's a whole other set of skills that I just don't feel like I have the time or the patience to learn, but I know a lot of people do. So I've talked to a few people about making some 120 scale stuff. And so hopefully that'll happen, you know, because as anyone knows, machining Krieger is just, it's ripe for any kind of accessory kits to make it, you know, very, it's, it's a utilitarian lived in, you know, like science fiction property. So, you know, any kind of the same type of stuff you would use in 135th scale armor works perfectly with machining Krieger. You just need it to be bigger. That's all. For sure. Scott, what are your thoughts behind that? I know you're delving down the rabbit hole for machining Krieger as well. Yeah, um, it's, it's you know, 3D printing is so cool. I mean, I waited to get into it until I felt like we, you know, we had some little bit better machines and a little bit better technology. And, you know, I think there's still a long way to go. But, you know, the machines that we have, the prints that we're getting are incredible. I've had some technical issues with mine, but it sort of forces you to go through your your process to troubleshoot it. And uh, the Anycubic machine that I had had a bad LCD. They sent me a replacement 
you know, I've got it mine up and running again. But uh, TJ, you know, you mentioned the design. What you need to do is have a good buddy who spent 30 years as a CAD designer. I have a, a good friend, uh, Dave Turner here, who I'll give a shout out. And he's awesome in CAD. And so we'll take apart for a model that we need or, or a design and uh, he'll, you know, be able to draw it up and do a great job. So that definitely helps, but it's really exciting. I think it brings it, you know, obviously a different um, spin on your hobby. And for a sci-fi nerd like I am and TJ, I know you are, it's pretty cool to be able to not just print a subject that there isn't a kit of, but print things in different scales. That's what's really cool. You mentioned the 120th scale. Yeah, and I'll just echo that. You know, for Mac, there's one creator out there. He goes by Polynoise, and I'll I'll share the I'll share the link with our listeners. He's got some pilot figures. He's got actually a suit that kind of reminds me of a uh, of a raccoon, and then he's got you know Cooster articulating arms. He's got he just uploaded these. I didn't even know it's an optional main gun barrel. So he's got one for. All for the Cooster and Crote, but one's like the Firefly. One of them's more German looking with the muzzle brake. And then he's got also a rail gun that's pretty sweet too. And those STLs are only $2. So it's super, super cheap and they're pretty sweet. So I think the possibility is endless and I can't wait to see more. Guys, we've got one more piece of feedback here from Andrew Armstrong out of Centerport, New York. And uh, again, uh, this is kind of unusual, but he's he's uh, addressed this to several of our podcasts. It starts out, hello, Ventures, Geeks, Mojovians, the Posse, and you guys up in Canada. Uh, Stuart, that was not us. That was his words. <laughs> I just want to thank you for what you guys are all doing. I've written to all of you at some point or another over the past few years. I got back into modeling in 2018. I'm a slow builder and an okay one. I don't model as much as I'd like, but being able to listen to you talk about scratches the modeling itch. I found On the Bench first, which led me to the Scale Model Podcast. I've been with the rest of you since your humble beginnings. The way you guys talk about the hobby, your interviews with people in and around the hobby, and the camaraderie between all the podcasts really makes me feel like part of a group. Uh, We really appreciate that, Andrew. That's kind of, you know, what we want to do. I can't make it to Omaha, but the reason I'm even thinking about it is because of the way you talked about Vegas and how stoked you you are all for this year. I'm bummed that I'm going to miss out, but I can't wait to hear the stories and see all the pictures. My modeling has improved drastically over the past few years, and I credit the podcast. If I didn't learn a technique or trick from listening to you, I learned it from a YouTube channel or a Facebook post that I heard about on a podcast. Thanks, guys. Have fun at Nats this year, and what your efforts add to the hobby can't be understated. Well, I really appreciate that feedback, Andrew, and just keep doing exactly what you said. You know, where we all just talk about this hobby that we love, and it's all about having a great time and, and getting better. So I really appreciate that. All right. Um, so let's do a quick peek in the um, Value Gear M3, M4, Sherman slash Lee group build uh, Facebook group, see what's going on in there. Been some good stuff lately. I want to start with Matt McDougal, and he finished his second kit. It's an M4A175. He's also made some more progress on his T10 Mine Exploder, which is ridiculous and and great. He's uh, 3D designing the rollers. Uh, they look really cool. Props to him. That looks <laughs> it looks really involved. It's just so goofy looking. I, I love it. Our good friend uh, Peter Fizlatsky is just making more and more improvements to his his first subject he added a little um mini art motorcycle which looks like it nearly killed him because it's like most mini art kits beautiful but a billion pieces so that's doing good he also 
listened to my suggestion and repainted the star on top of his captured uh, ammo trailer. It looks much better. I got that idea because I saw a captured Kubel wagon or some some sort of soft skin that was painted German yellow, you know, Dunkelgelb, and the Americans had painted a hollow drab square and then a white star on it. I was like, man, that looks pretty cool. So he did that. And that's neat. Uh, our friend Zach Grizzle, he's making some progress on the, his weathering on his uh, M4A176. It's coming along. The dirt on the side, like on the side of the holes, looks really good. And the dirt on the turret looks fantastic. So I think he is a little down on it, but just I think it looks pretty good. So just keep up the good work, Zach. And that's, that's I would say that's probably been the highlights for the last um couple weeks or so i made am making a base for my first entry uh it's primed and i just need to start painting it so maybe this weekend i can find steal some time away and come down here and just put a couple coats of paint on it and yeah i think that's uh pretty much what we got going on i liked joel middleton's m m4 sherman i believe it's an a4 with a small hatch it's really nice and he's got the canvas cover on the mantlet so I am looking forward to what he's doing with that because there's some nice surface texture there and it's a really crisp build too. Yeah, I just wanted to go back to what TJ was saying about Zach's um, Sherman. You know, when we met Zach, he would do really incredible builds with lots of detail, but he wouldn't paint anything. And he's come so far and the camouflage that he's put on that Sherman and now um, getting into pigments and you know all the other weathering. I think he's really coming along. And like all of us, he's hard on himself, but I think he's doing a really terrific job. And I can't wait to see the model in person. It's definitely going to be one of the standouts of uh, of our group build, I think. Um, and also, another reminder to go check out um, our uh, buddies over at the Bottle Geeks, their A4 uh, scooter group build. Um, I think we're all doing it. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I've not made any progress on mine, but I'm going to. It's going to be done. I keep saying that every episode, but I'll buckle down and, and get that done because I really want to contribute to that, that uh, group build. And I want to build an airplane, so I figure that's a perfect opportunity. Well, I have actually made some progress on my M3, M4 group built. I'm doing an uh, M10 Israeli uh, Reserve Sherman. That's been coming along good. But yeah, I'm uh, I'm also a little bit behind on the A4 build. So hopefully uh, that will happen soon. JB, how, uh, how are your group builds coming along? Group builds are good. I got the Butte Panzer uh, mounted on a base. I need to do a little bit more groundwork and I got to put a uh, German jacket on it. So that one's coming along good. The New Zealand Mark III is about done. I want to put some stowage on it, but it's good enough to like put away for a little while. And I have a base for it. I actually have a nice ceramic or, you know, I forget the casting material that's used for, it's not plaster. It's a little bit stronger and it'll be a road and then I'll have it on a road and it's, it's clean. Uh, so we'll put a little bit of stowage on it, maybe a commander figure. So those will two be polished off. And then I have that Firefly E8 I'd like to get done. And then for the group build for the geeks, um, I started the A4. I haven't touched it in a while, but it's there. Um, I think it's going to come down to one of those slammer builds where I just buckle down one weekend and crank the whole thing out and pull a TJ. So that's probably what's going to happen there, but it's, it's going well. It's all, it's all good. And man, it's going to be here before we know it. So I just got to get this stuff done. All right. Well, thanks TJ. It was some good updates on, on, on our group builds and our own progress. Now comes the time in the episode where we're going to go into our feature segment. This is terrific. You guys are going to love this. Uh, Ivan and I, uh, last weekend, uh, were lucky enough to spend some time with uh, everybody's favorite uncle, Uncle Night Shift, uh, Martin Kovach, and also Spencer Pollard. And uh, Ivan and I had been talking about this uh, idea for quite a while, but we wanted to talk about 
with both Martin and Spencer, the parts of their work that weren't about the model. So, you know, the groundwork, the structures, uh, the other model making elements uh, besides just the model, you know, the figures, all those kinds of things. And man, what a what an amazing conversation that was. The perspectives were were very different. It was the first time Spencer and Martin had spoken to each other. The conversation was really fascinating. So uh, with that said, here's the interview. Welcome to another Plastic Posse interview. Today, Ivan Jensen Taylor and I are very pleased to be joined by two great friends of the Posse, Spencer Pollard from the UK and Martin Kovac from Slovakia have joined us today. Spencer, welcome back to the Posse. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for asking me back. Um, The last time I was on was a lot of fun, I think. It was uh, a really good conversation. Really enjoyed it. So, um, so thanks. Obviously, I didn't say anything that was too contentious or made you sort of shrug slightly. So, uh, so yeah, brilliant. It's gl- glad to be back. Yeah, really nice. And and I think I said this the last time I was on as well that that I, I you know I I really appreciate you guys doing this kind of thing because often um, when when we put live videos out of broadcast all that those kind of things um often it's a it's a personal thing you're basically you're manifestly giving over information about yourself whereas these kind of conversational pieces and conversations like this that are done so well and so professionally i think are things to be applauded so um so once again i i thank you for for doing that and, and spending the time to do that and and, and asking very interesting people myself excluded um, but very interesting people that come on these shows um to to tell you about the hobby i think that's great so um yeah thanks for saying very much appreciated thank you spence and and uh, martin uh, you as well uh, welcome back to the posse we always have a great time talking to you and it's fantastic to talk to you again yeah it's awesome hey guys and thanks for having me again absolutely obviously both spencer and martin are known for their incredible model making These guys are also really talented storytellers, and it is specifically this aspect of their recent work that I wanted to talk about today. And so Ivan and I started talking about this concept, I think, Ivan, six months ago? Yeah, it's been a a long time planning, yes. Yeah. Um, so our discussion today is going to be, I, I, I've called it probably wrongly so, but I've called it modeling peripherals. So maybe put another way, we want to talk about storytelling with all of the elements of a model, a diorama, a vignette, besides the model itself at the center of these pieces. And so kind of where this started was uh, something with each one of these guys. And uh, the first thing was, I got a book from Spencer uh, that he put together called The Legacy Collection, Volume 1. Spoiler alert, this is one of my favorite modeling books. I love this thing. Spencer did not pay me to say that. When he initially posted the the trailer for the book, um, what he said about it was The Legacy Part 1 is a detailed look at four dioramas that were built all using uh, Francois Verlinden's inspiration, ideas, and techniques. So Spencer, I'm going to let you talk about this. Uh, You're going to be a lot more eloquent than me, but let's talk about your legacy collection initiative, maybe how you originally came to decide on this as a concept and how that developed into these two books that you've uh, put out. The legacy collection was was born of time that I had as the COVID pandemic 
struck in the spring of 2020. Um, I found myself furloughed from work. I had no sort of kind of employment in terms of actually having to build models. And so I found myself at a bit of a loose end. And a conversation had taken place with with Jonathan Mark, who was the one of the drivers that we talked about with the uh, with the interesting modeling company page and videos and that kind of thing that sort of spawned from from this at the time. The way that it began was was very simple kind of bit of serendipity actually. I was a I was at a local model shop and they'd got the SDK SO two five one Hanamag in the shop. It was and it was being sold for £10 or something like that. And just off the hoof, I thought, well, I'll buy that. You know, it was a kit that I'd been bought as a, as a, as a young child by my mom. And I sort of re, I, I kind of wanted to go back to it and see whether or not I could put it together using current techniques. Nothing to do with Francois Land and just current techniques. Could I make a, a kit from 1970 dot into something that would be passable in 2020. And I did what all model makers do when they buy a kit. I threw it in the loft and I left it there um, for about six weeks. Forgot all about it. And then during a conversation I with Jonathan, this kit came up and, and I sort of mentioned it and said, oh, I quite fancy building one of these. And I put it onto my Facebook page and I said, look, I'm going to build one of these kits, but I'm actually thinking of not building it with current techniques. I'm thinking of building it with older ideas. So washes, dry brushing, that kind of thing. Simplify the process and a kind of a, a sort of a, a Valinden-esque kind of thing. Some people came back and said, well, why don't you do it as a Valinden build? Use all of those techniques. Use use his models and use those kind of techniques. And I slept on it and, I, and I, the following morning, I thought, that's actually a pretty good idea. I know Francois anyway, and I know his techniques. And I basically felt comfortable that I could ape everything that he'd done on his early models again. I I, I sort of, I, I think this has become clear over the last two years to anybody that's followed me is that it's a bit of an obsession. Francois Linden's early work is a bit of an obsession with me, to put it mildly. And so I know pretty much every model he ever made. I know how he made them. I know how he painted them. I know which accessories he put with them, that whole kind of thing. It was a bit like being a groupie for a band, you know, and, and, and understanding their entire back catalogue. I did it for Francois Valentin's models. So that's what I decided I was going to do. And I was going to build this model and I was going to try and create something that was fundamentally looked like something he would have built. But I took it then a bit further and then I decided to build a diorama. And if I was going to build a diorama, what I then decided I was going to do, would I would sculpt a building that looked like an MDA building or a DCS building from the 1970s. And I would just capture that look. And alongside that, I would use only accessories and only figures that were released at the same time as the 251. And so I had an idea in my head. And that was where that Hanamag diorama pinned down came from. That came from that core idea. And then a friend of mine got in touch with me, um, Andy Farmer. Andy Farmer is the main, is the main buyer and seller for, for the hobby company in the UK who distribute Tamiya and Italarian Dragon, amongst other things. And he contacted me and he said, do you realize that the Hanamag is in the top five best selling military miniature kits in history from Tamiya? It's been on sale since it was first released and it's in their top five bestsellers. So I sent him a message back and I said, I want to, what's, what's the, what are the other five kits? What are the other four kits in that top five? Panther, the old Panther, Panzer II, Flat Panzer 36, 37, the Chieftain and the Hanamag. They make up the top five. They're the five best selling kits across the whole of the military miniatures range. They outstrip everything else by 
tens of thousands of kits. Simple as that. So he said, if you're going to do the Hanamag, why don't you do the other five? Well, the, the other four, rather. And I thought, mm, okay, that sounds like a good idea. Wasn't that keen on the idea of doing the Panther? Because I knew that the Panther was just basically rubbish. But the others, I thought that be, be, would be kind of cool. And alongside the Panzer II, I also had an SASG, which I, I'd got in the loft. And that kind of spurned some kind of idea of bringing those two kits together. They were released five, six years apart, but I thought that would be kind of cool. And that's where it came from. That's where the legacy collection came from. It came from that simple idea of, of needing something to fill my time during the spring and summer when basically the world was falling to pieces around everybody and not go into hiatus and build something that I didn't think was worth worth doing. I, I think I've, I've sort of made this clear over the time. I don't really build models to relax, if that's not an odd thing to say. I build models for a, I, because I, I have a I need to satisfy my creative urges, the creative part of my brain. Um, but I can't really build models just to think, well, I'll build it and nobody will see it and I'll just put it away. It's That's not how I work. And I've, I, I, don't, I haven't worked like that for 30 years. So I had an idea. I had a collection. I had a bunch of kits which they sent me. And I had and I just worked my way my way through that. And and it went from being a very simple idea to something that was a bit more developed. And then as as time went through, the the projects became more involved. The detail became more. The, the processes became more involved. The techniques were more cutting edge. They were m- more in line with what I did. So from that first Hanamag build. I then developed it on to doing the Honda S600 diorama, which is the one that's in the garage with all of the racking and everything behind it, which is a completely different um, look. Chieftain was painted with with my normal bank of techniques. And then I went on to doing the Panther, which was the very final one that I built. And that was a different kind of diorama idea. And, and I, I super detailed the model and all of that sort of stuff. But fundamentally, that was what it was. It was a simple idea developed out to fill time. Nothing more than that. But it was... I, did, I talk about this in the second part of the book, in the second volume of the book. It was an itch I needed to scratch, if that makes sense. I needed to, I needed to go backwards to allow my modelling to develop and move forwards again. I needed to deconstruct everything that I'd learned. I needed to deconstruct my, my ideas, my approach. I needed to deconstruct what I thought was important. And, by, uh, and what that meant was simplifying everything. Those dioramas are rock solid simple every single one of them. And I took it right back and I decided that if I simplified everything, then when it came to doing things that were a little bit more involved later on, then I could base it on that bedrock and then move forward rather than getting bogged down and I could speed up again and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, it was a, it was a, an emotional project because I was paying homage to somebody that I hold in higher esteem than anybody else in model making. But it was also a fundamentally important process for me as a model maker to deconstruct myself and and learn about what I wanted to do and how I wanted to do it. And and as a result of that, it means that I have now a much simpler approach to, and I'll, we'll talk about this later when it comes to planning. Uh, I have a much more simple, simplistic approach to the hobby than I, than I did have two years ago, uh, all as a result of, of that collection. The other, uh, the other motivation for this topic, Martin, um, has been watching your work on your Night Shift channel over the past 12 months. Um, there's been a, 
for me, a kind of change of your recent work that kind of started when you did uh, the painting of the three figures for your T29 build. And then you kind of continued that on with your videos. You've been, you made barns, you've sculpted houses and structures, you focused on scenery. And so all these other uh, storytelling elements have become a big part of, of your channel. Uh, one specific example I don't think there's even a tank in the whole video as you did a video on carving bricks and stones out of styrofoam. It certainly doesn't, you know, make them less compelling. But anyway, as this kind of work has become increasingly more significant, has this been a natural evolution for you or is this by design? It's been a natural evolution that was started by brute force because my initial motivation to start making dioramas was basically the YouTube comment section bullied me into it. <laughs> they kept <laughs> nagging me all the time, like, make a diorama, do, so do something different. And then when I finished the Tiger F-13 and I built that Syrian T-90, that horrible kit from Revel, I thought, hey, this is kind of fun. Why not try something new? You know, let's make a small scene. Let's call it a diorama. And let's use the stuff I have at home. So basically weathering products, not actual, you know, terrain modeling stuff and so on. And by then I already had a 3D printer. So that opened a few new possibilities and everything. And I just had a blast, you know. So then I kind of knew that I want to continue this trend and try different things and you know go into more detail and everything so i bought an air drying clay for example for the terrain and everything and then it just naturally progressed and not just the not just the techniques but also well not the size of those dioramas but i'd say their complexity you know because from the beginning i was mostly let's be honest just building vignettes and uh, i don't know who called it like that decorated display stands so there was <laughs> nothing really going on there that's a, that's a great description and so i think the real breakthrough was the T29 diorama because before that I finished the Yak Tiger scene and that was just really just a display stand, nothing else, you know. No matter how I tried to sell it, it was just a display stand. And so the T29 was a breakthrough because that was an actual diorama. But it's not a really good diorama. It's actually pretty bad. <laughs> and well, okay, it does I think in all my humbleness, <laughs> it doesn't fail on the actual techniques, but it, where it stumbles, it's the composition and the presentation. So I think it was after that. Yeah, I started building the T55, then I broke my leg, so no diorama there. And then no matter how much people didn't care about it, the Samiwa diorama with the brick wall and the tree, I personally think that's my first, well, let's call it successful diorama because it actually looks the way I wanted to present it. No matter if the tank itself isn't really nice, it's not my best work, but come on, I made it with a broken leg with a cast from, from my toes to my crotch. Okay, give me a break. And <laughs> and then what was after that? Yeah, the, the Normandy diorama. That was like full on everything, you know, balls to the wall, uh, high octane diorama action. 
with a build with a huge building, uh, a dog, four no three figures, telegraph pole, cobblestone road, tall grass, just everything, you know. So yeah, that was pretty interesting and really time consuming. Who would have thought? And then I thought, okay, let's make something more simple. So then the Mark IV diorama came to happen. And yeah, despite most of it being covered with epoxy resin, which was something completely new for me, well, actually not so long ago, um, it was actually pretty simple. And it wasn't so time consuming to actually finish. And yeah, it was fun. And then it was when I started to realize like, if you want to make a diorama that, that looks nice as a whole, you need to find balance between each element. So let's say you're really passionate about tanks and dioramas are more like your side gig or something. Well, then you probably might think about simplifying your approach on the tank itself because you might invest your soul and heart into the tank and then it will stand out too much. And... Yeah, that's actually it. The last diorama I'm working on right now, the A7V stuck in a trench, that's like the natural progression of things. I think the main difference with this diorama and all the previous ones is that this one actually has a lot of mass because it's huge. The, the portion of the terrain is like almost three times the, as tall as my all previous dioramas. We're, we're talking about just the wooden sides, you know? And yeah, so even if it might not look like it, um, there's actually, you know, always some something new that I'm trying to do and everything. So yeah, call it a natural natural evolution that was kind of started a little bit forcefully. <laughs> well, well, building on that, before I hand the ball over to Ivan to talk about some specifics, I want to follow up both Spencer, both what you spoke about um, with the Legacy Collection and Martin with what you've been just describing. It almost sounds like the storytelling aspect, the making of the dioramas um, expanding just from the models, that kind of feeds your passions, makes the modeling more personal, more enjoyable. Mm. I'd say so, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And I think it, it depends on how you're, you're a- approaching what you do. Listening to Martin talking, it's really interesting that it's an evolutionary process in terms of what he can, can create and, and, and how the, the sort of the levels of complexity and, and technique evolve, I, I guess, naturally on a, on a, on a curve through that, through that, that work, each time trying something new and, and, and different to come up with it. Not necessarily just a different idea, but, but also incorporating something in it where you go, yeah, I, that I've evolved that. I've evolved that paintwork I've evolved those details I've evolved that setting um, working my way through I guess on some of mine I almost I did the reverse really I didn't evolve anything I, I kind of I, I just sort of spun the whole thing on its head and 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 kind of chucked all that that out of the window and, and sort of you know stepped back to being a kid again kind of thing but certainly for me um, a, a lot of I think it's worth saying and, and I don't think I'm, I'm sort of you know saying anything people don't really know that that there are a lot of Francois dioramas we go to the legacy collection because it, it's underpinned by his work um, a lot of Francois dioramas are what Martin said they're glorified display pieces that they're, they're 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 bases on which he's built a vehicle that 
back in the 70s would be used to to sell a product. That's what they're there for. They're, they're, they weren't designed as, as competitive pieces necessarily. Italeri would send him a, a Crusader tank and he would build a Crusader, put it on a diorama with a couple of figures, and that would then be used as as the kind of the props to sell that kit. In latter times, in the in the sort of the mid to late 80s when he had his shop in Lierre, he was building brand new kits that were coming in so he could put them on the on the glass countertop in his shop and people would go, oh, that's the new Chaffee. Um, do you have those in stock? Well, actually, yes, I do. Pull them off the shelf, hand them over. And then he started sort of casting DCS buildings and all of that kind of stuff that went with it. It was a way of selling products. It was for no other reason. So consequently, they don't really tell a story necessarily other than here's a here's a tank with some crew looking at a map. That's a pretty simple story, but it isn't really a story. It's not the sort of story that's going to get commissioned by Netflix for a two-season show that people are going to watch for the next two years. It's a kind of, it's just sort of there. And a lot of that early work, you know, a lot of the things you look at it and go, yeah, that's kind of cool. I like that. You know, it's nice. It doesn't really tell a story though. There isn't much of a story in there. And I think, and as as sort of later dioramas became, you know, he, he was building stuff before up to the point he, he sort of retired, less and less so. But but sort of as a counterpoint to that, other diorama builders then started to create dioramas that had a much more focused story. You would see them and you'd look at it and go, yeah, I know exactly what that what that means. Good example of that is Shep Payne. Shep Payne's dioramas always had a story. Every single diorama that he ever made had a story to tell. Every one. I can't think of a single example of a Shep Payne diorama that I've seen, and I think I've seen them all, that doesn't have a story as a core tenet within that within that setting. You just think about it. Think about all of them. Um, you think about Wolf in Sheep's Clothing, which is the 88 in the church. That's the, sto- the story there is the incongruity between a gun crew and the surroundings. The surroundings being the church. It was the first time we'd seen a diorama that had had an action scene of a, you know, of a military unit fighting inside a church. And so that was, that was what that scene was. We talked on here the last time about, um, about Aid Station. Aid Station is probably one of the finest dioramas I've ever seen. And it's about six inches square. And basically all it is, is a, is a Jeep coming around the corner of the corner of an aid station building um, that's being used by American troops for first aid. And it comes around the corner where it's got a stretcher on the back and it's on two wheels as it comes around the corner. Well, you can see the story bang there. And what I love about that work and what I love about Shep's work in particular is he doesn't have any superficial nonsense with it. You look at his dioramas, there are very few accessories on them. Aid Station has a, in the one that went into the the Tamir catalogue, it has a pile of boxes in the front corner, in the front left-hand corner. And the reason those boxes are on that part of that diorama for the catalogue is that originally there were two dead bodies covered in tarpaulins in that point. And it went against Japanese sensibilities. They said, we can't have dead bodies on the dioramas. So they removed the dead bodies and covered over those points with a pile of, of wooden boxes that covers over that. It's the only accessories in that diorama. There's none anywhere else, in contrast to what Francois did, where he had accessories everywhere, you know, just to kind of fill spaces and all of that sort of stuff. But I think it's just, it's over the years, the storytelling aspect of dioramas has become more and more important. And that's one of the reasons why I found building dioramas to be more and more difficult, because you're constantly looking for a 
a storyboard. You're looking for a core that you can use inside that. Often the way I get around that is I think of a title. And if I've got a title in my mind, then then it sort of works. A good, an example of that is uh, Moran Van Gils did a diorama uh, for Euromilitaire 10 years ago or so. And he called it the 101st Dalmatians. And it's basically a panther that's on its nose in a ditch. And you've got a, a bunch of American soldiers around it and one sliding down the belly of the panther holding a Dalmatian dog. And it's the 101st Airborne and it's called 101st Dalmatian. And the, and the Dalmatian is the dog. It's, that's the core part of his diorama. And I, and I thought, that's kind of cool. Just keep the title. Just use the title and then work from that. Um, so that's sort of how I go about it really but uh, <laughs> which makes it sound ultra simple Spence comes up with an idea he comes up with a title for a diorama and then the next thing he's got a diorama in front of him that title may have taken me an eternity to 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 sort of reach but that's sort of the way I, I go with it did I go off topic there I'm not sure whether I did or not I seem to have, seem <laughs> no, to have not, I don't think so <laughs> a little bit so um but yeah that's 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 where i i come up with it well i told you happy accidents as uh as one cotton bud haired artist once said mr what's his name the little guy who does the uh does the oil painting uh, bob ross oh, that's bob ross yeah bob ross there you go mr he he talked about happy accidents didn't he so let's talk about the idea of using modelling elements for the purpose of storytelling. Obviously, they're the best dioramas in vignettes, or at least the most memorable ones, and the ones that tell compelling stories. And both of you are extremely talented and skilled at that, regardless of what you both say. <laughs> so, uh, Martin, uh, I want to start this one with you. Uh, who or what has been a significant inspiration for your work with regards to this idea of telling stories with your modelling? Okay, so I think the biggest influence on me was the pretty well, well-known well German modeler Volker Bembenek, who's pretty well-known for his dioramas such as In Position on Hill 112 from Normandy, or The Desert Hulk, Desert Hulk with the Bishop in the Desert, or Desert Hulk 2.0 with the Paladin, and so on. So yeah, his work caught my eye a long time ago. But back then, I didn't know why. I just liked his dioramas. There was something about them. So then I started exploring his work and trying to understand how he thinks and works. But not just in the terms of storytelling or composition, but also the overall balance. I think it's the balance of everything that makes his work so pleasant to look at. You know, and then as I started exploring other great diorama modelers, you know, I really started uh, studying dioramas from, as mentioned, Marine van Giels or Mirko Bayerl or Per Olav Lund, these Nordic modelers. So, yeah, you can kind of draw inspiration from everyone and kind of... It's it's like with it's like with models and weathering or building models. You know, you can like many other many many modelers and take some something from Adam Wilder, take something something from Mike Rinaldi and so on. And then you sort of start melting these elements together or different approaches and kind of starting to come up with your own stuff. I don't think I'm quite there yet with my own stuff, so to say. So I'm always kind of looking and thinking like what would Volker do you know <laughs> for example and also I'm terrible at coming with my own ideas so I often 
use either historical photos or something mundane from everyday life as an inspiration or as a basis for the setting itself you know so yeah and you guys keep talking about storytelling and everything and i don't know what to say here because personally not personally objectively i'm a terrible storyteller because if you look at my dioramas the story isn't really anything special and it comes down to two things first off i don't have time for time for that <laughs> and second <laughs> i'm limited by the selection of figures that i can can find on the market because unfortunately i don't have the skill and i don't have the time to learn the skill to convert adjust or sculpt my own figures for the sake of my very special non-existent storytelling ideas and skills so i kind of need to work with what i have you know and sometimes when well not sometimes it's almost every time when i'm you know buying paints or anything that i'm missing i always go through the selection of figures and if something catches my eye i just buy them might never use them but i have them you know so yeah me and storytelling because again if you look at these dioramas that i mentioned they are basically uh still life scenes so to say nothing is really happening there right the yak panther diorama is just the yak panther crew chilling uh, on a meadow in france playing with dogs okay maybe that's a story but it's nothing special you know the mark four is just a soldier walking by a sunken tank nothing really happening there um the t29 diorama just the just two american tankers looking at the gi who's waving at them to stop or something um what else the samiwa diorama two tankers just looking somewhere in the distance whatever might be happening there uh this a7b diorama just two soldiers looking at each other over the tank you know so nothing really special story-wise going there so i'm kind of at a loss here <laughs> well well far be it from me to disagree with my guests uh, but maybe they are maybe leaning more towards being vignettes and less for dioramas but a vehicle on as you to use your term a glorified display stand versus a vehicle that has other storytelling implements figures and uh, you mentioned uh, one of your recent pieces has a dog in it and structures all of those help make that vehicle seem in, like it's in the right environment it gives it more credibility it, it makes it more visually interesting to see a tank that has a story around it that looks natural that looks like it belongs uh spencer you said some of the same things about francois's work you know where they were designed to be displays but why those were effective selling tools was because those vehicles and those figures and everything around it looked like they belong and that inspired all of us at home or that walked into the hobby shop or looked at the verlinden catalog or watches martin's videos to go wow that's really that's inspiring that's something i want to do yeah i'm sort of thinking as martin was talking a, a lot of what i do is, is very similar to that it, it it isn't 
there is, like I say, there's no grandiose story to a lot of what I do. Um, part of uh, Martin and I have a, a, probably a similar need um, when it comes to what we build and the way that we build it and that kind of thing. Martin's doing it for his online work. I'm doing it for the work that I do in print. So we're kind of doing, we, we're sort of coming at the same problem from slightly different directions, but hitting it at the same point. So if, for instance, M- uh, Marcus gives me a model and says, here's a model, can you build it? Can you put it in a vignette? I'm the same. I don't have time to sit there and go, wow, yeah, let's, can I build something that's going to win a gold medal at Scale Model Challenge? And no, I haven't got time to do that. Basically, I've got to build a, di- a model, a diorama, photograph it and write it up in a month. So I haven't really got the sort of the time to be able to think too much beyond that. Everything has to be at speed. It has to be, I have to hit, hit the ground running and then sort of work with it. I, I guess a, a good example of that is the, the Archer um, that I've just completed. That thing, there was, there was kind of, I, I built the model first. What can I do with the model? How can I sort of set it up and, and, and do all of those kind of things? So you have to, you, you really do have to sort of, I don't know, um, sort of think beyond sort of being clever to 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 just creating something that's that's I, I guess manifestly interesting to look at I one of the reasons why I like Martin's work as much as I do is it's manifestly interesting to look at there's no doubt about it um you know you look at those set pieces and I look at them and I think yeah I like the color combinations I like the setting I like the layout they're balanced there's loads of detail on them you know they, they have a they all look like they're built by Martin as well which I also like I you know it's it's He's got a distinct style. I'm sure if I walked into a show, saw his work on the table, I'd go, yeah, that's Martin's work. That's his. Even if I'd never seen it before, I'd have a kind of a, an idea that it was that it was his because of the way that he does. Uh, Vol- uh, Volker Bembenek's work. I can see. I could see Volker's work in a, in a crowded room from the other side of the room, from the balcony. I'd be able to go. There's Volker's work. You know. And same with with Pere Lovelund's work. He's he's sort of taken that off in a in a different direction. What what set? I think almost what sets these dioramas apart more than the story actually is that they all have a very distinct style very distinct style and um, we, we, we mentioning Francois and Chepain Francois dioramas had a very distinct style you you just look at them and you go that's Francois Valinders Chepain's you look at it you go yeah that's Sheps um, and now it's the same with the with the current group it's the same with with all of the the you know I could p- pick out a Phil Stuchinsky's diorama um in a crowded room it wouldn't be difficult I just go that's Philip's work in fact, that happened three years ago. Um, I don't think this model's ever been online. I've never seen a photograph of it. They're, they're, he's got he's built this amazing new diorama that's got two tiger tanks in it, two tiger tanks, and an, a massive tree. And underneath the tree is a is a um, like a, a blitz or something like that, big truck, and it's filled with ammunition. And it's got a big farmhouse in the background. And I walked up to it. I'd never seen it before, and I was like, "That's Phil's work. That's Phil's diorama." And he was at the show, and I, I walked up to him. And I said, "Phil." I said, that must be your diorama. And he went, yeah, it is. And he's never shown photographs. As far as I'm aware, it's never been in a book. It's never been in a magazine. It's never been online. And in fact, he said to me, please, you know, just keep it to yourself kind of thing. And, but I could see it was his work. So I think that that maybe that's almost more important, that you're creating a a visual body of work that that other people will be able to reference and other people will be able to be inspired by. I, I you know, I feel that Martin's maybe, you know, being sort of too, slightly too self-effacing 
sort of almost diminishing the, the, the way that the dioramas look when that's not how anybody else sees them, certainly not how I see. Yeah, is there anything wrong with creating something that's a glorified display base for a, for a nicely painted um, vehicle and some figures? No, absolutely not. Why would there be? You know, and to suggest otherwise, I think would would make people feel that their work was somehow diminished as a result of that. You know, I think that that would be something that that we need to sort of very much go against don't we you know so it, it's not you know if somebody shows you a diorama and, and says what do you think of this and, do you like my diorama in inverted commas um if it if it ticks all of those kind of boxes then i think that's they've done what they've set out to do haven't they they've created a home for the vehicle they've you know and, and i agree with what you said earlier you said that you know that that when you're building vehicles they make more sense when they're in a vignette or a diorama. You know, it's nice to look at a really lovely painted vehicle on a, on a nice wooden plinth with a nameplate by it, but put some groundwork underneath it and a couple of figures by the side of it. It gives it a sense of scale. It gives it a sense of purpose. And it gives it a, a, an operating theatre where you can look at it and go, yeah, I imagine that that's, that that's, that's kind of where it is. Yeah, Mar- Martin's Mark IV. Um, sorry, Martin, to talk about you in the third person again. His <laughs> Mark IV that he did recently he took a, a Mark IV and he could have made a Mark IV just by itself and it would have been lovely. We all would have liked it. But, you know, he took a saw to it. He sunk it into the, a, a swamp. He poured water all around. I mean, and the way that he presented it, it, it really makes it, like you, like you said, Spencer, much more interesting. But also, again, I think it gives it more credibility because it's integrated into all the other elements of the scene. It's quite literally integrated with the epoxy <laughs> resin burger. <laughs> it must be heavy as well. Yeah, it must weigh a lot. Actually not. Yeah, because most of the volume is is made by styrofoam. So uh, okay. actually pretty lightweight. All of my dioramas are pretty lightweight. But I think that's where you guys do such a good job with that. Because although you say you don't have time to be trying to work out a story to to show or tell, what you do is allow the viewer, like me, for example, to look at your work and make that story in my head through what I'm seeing. Uh, so, for example, the Mark IV that's destroyed and it's submerged in a, in a crater and the soldier walking past, it's like, that allows me to think, it's like, right, that's that's a tank that's been destroyed. We don't know who's winning the war at this point. He's looking back at that tank thinking, that's another one of us. We've lost another tank. It's, it's, it's not going well. It's doom and gloom. So it allows us, it, although it may not be your intention, it gives us the opportunity to maybe invent our own story through your art. And I will use that word art because I, I think it is. The, the one thing I, I think it'd be interesting to see whether Martin feels the same way is if I, when, once I've completed a diorama and I've got it on my desk in front of me, I ask myself one question and I ask it with every single diorama that I ever build. Could I imagine myself standing in the middle of that scene? And looking at it as an actual place, could I imagine being there? Could I step if I, you know, if I could shrink myself down to fifty-four mil? Um, could I step into it and, and, and see myself in there? And if the answer to that is yes, and it doesn't matter how complex it is, then then I think I feel like I've succeeded. If I look at it and go, no, it looks like a model. It, 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 it looks it, it looks too. I don't want to use the word fake, but. I can't think of a better word at the moment. It looks too sort of manicured, too heightened, too accentuated as a, as a piece. 
if I don't feel that, and if I feel that that what I'm looking at looks like reality, a, a real setting, then to me, that's that's how I judge the success of my piece, um, rather than thinking, well, I've micro painted the tank. It's that's you know that looks great. The figures are great. None of that matters. What matters is does the location work for me? Can I imagine myself stood there? If I was stood there, would it look like this? And if I get to that point, then then that's that that's to me uh, um, a successful piece, I guess. But if I don't feel that way, as I didn't with a diorama that I that I did a few years ago um, that I took to Euro Militaire, which was called um, the Games Afoot. It was based on a on a video game. It got it got an Abrams on it and a load of accessories and a ISO container and all. And I based it on a game I was playing. I hated it that much that as soon as I got it back home, I smashed it. I smashed the whole lot and, and just thought that's rubbish and just got rid of it because I, 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 all the way through, I was thinking I'm forcing this too much. It's not, it's just not working. And yeah, I completed it, took it with me, look at it, looked at it on the table and thought <laughs> that really is just rubbish. Um, and I got it back and I stripped everything off it, took all the, the accessories off, which I've actually reused on other dioramas, took all the accessories off. Um, and I threw the rest of it in the bin because I didn't feel that it was, it wasn't a setting that I could imagine myself in. So, yeah, I'm interested to see if Martin feels the same. It's it's just one of those questions I always ask myself, is does it look real? Can I imagine myself standing there? I actually smashed a few of my models today. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yippee! <laughs> yeah, I just, I just took the Freel model tracks from them and just completely smashed them because I was making some space in my display case, so... Some oh. of them had to go. Yeah, and, and the first one was quite painful. So I thought, okay, I need to make this as respectful and as painless <laughs> and as humane as possible. So I gently placed it in a cardboard box and I just stepped on it, like stomped <laughs> on it. <laughs> and it, it felt it felt pretty good. <laughs> it makes it sound like you executed your model. <laughs> I just finished them. <laughs> but no, no, seriously, like a, a bunch of them were damaged from transportation and everything. Some of them were starting to fall apart. So I just pretty much just finished them, you know, I gave them the finishing blow. And yeah. But to your point, Spence, I never really thought about it like that. Maybe it might be a subconscious thing because as you were talking about it, I imagined, yeah, I could really like... I like. I would really like to, like to spend some time in my dioramas because because maybe that's why all of them are still lives and all of them are just have quite a you know chill uh, normal atmosphere. I could take a smoke with those German tankers playing with a puppy. You know, I could. Yeah. I don't know. Take a walk through a battlefield in World War One if I knew nothing would happen to me. You know, I wouldn't like to fight. So maybe that's why I'm not building any combat dioramas. But yeah. yeah, that that's in terms of storytelling, if we can call it like that. I guess my intention is always to make something that looks peaceful. Yeah. Like everyone's having a good time, sort of, you know, just vibing and everything. So yeah, but no, I I didn't really think about that once. What I do, but not just when I finish a diorama, I actually do it all the time uh, from the beginning. I always set the main viewing angle. That's where everything should be composed as intended. Mm. As interesting as 
pleasant, as eye-catching as possible. And I always, no matter if it's the initial composition where I'm just u- using styrofoam mock-ups or, or and everything, or during the painting stage and everything, I always look at it from the front, from the main viewing angle and think like, okay, is this interesting enough? Is this showing well enough? You know, everything. And I always check that. And then once it's finished, and even when I go away from my workbench and I'm, and I'm sitting in my computer, maybe looking over my shoulder, you know, I turn the diorama so I can look directly at it. And if it looks the way I imagined and when I feel like, okay, I made the front, the main viewing section as good looking as possible, then I'm satisfied with it. That's why I said the T29 diorama fails and it's a pretty awful diorama because when you look at it from the front, it's just a mess. You need to turn it around to make it look more interesting, to actually see what's going on. And that's a failed diorama for me. So since then, I was paying a lot of attention to this. The initial planning, make it make it as interesting as possible from the one main angle. So we don't if your friends go come over or you're on a modeling show. You don't have to turn the diorama around, you know, to let me turn it to five degrees because it looks more more interesting that way. But there's no room space. Oh, okay, you know. No, make it look as good as possible from one angle. The other ones are just a cherry on top. It's basically, when I'm thinking about it, I'm sort of trying to make a postcard in 3D, you know. And sometimes when the timing and luck is right, the diorama looks actually good from two sides. <laughs> For example, the Eggpanther diorama can be viewed from the front and the right side. So, because there's no cut in the building visible, you know, the, the black void at the back side of the building, the mark for a diorama is technically viewable from all sides, you know, because nothing is blocking the view. Uh, same is going to be with the A7V diorama. But not all of them are designed like that, of course, but that's, of course, not a mistake. Uh, that's just a matter of what elements are you using. And yeah, I guess that's the whole spirit of how I try to create a diorama, to make it good looking from the front and make it as interesting as possible. And this is something I picked up from Volker's work, work because even though he doesn't mention it in his uh, articles, but you can see it when you look at his work more closely. And I always remind myself, whatever I'm building a a house or a piece of terrain or I'm building a tank and I'm working on each individual section, I'm always telling myself, make it as interesting as possible. Make it as interesting as possible. Add something here. Make something different here. You know, so it's, it's sort of try to get the most out of every square inch of your work, basically. Yeah, then there's, of course, the question of balance, because suddenly it might become too much. But yeah, that's a completely different topic that I'm not sure I'm confident about to talk about yet. (laughs) Because (laughs) that's really tricky. It's, yeah, it's, I mean, that that idea of seeing a, a, a diorama, building a diorama where you have one main focal point, that's how I've always created my molds. My, my dioramas are never supposed to be looked at from behind. Um, and in fact, a lot of the time, I, I don't even worry about the structural details. If I build a building, it's a facade. It, it can be a corner building, but it essentially is a facade. I'm not interested in doing everything from the from the other side. I, I, they're, they're not, they're not, 
a, a band that gets seen on a round stage and everybody sort of sees them, you know, in the round. They are what they are. They're point of focus um, scenes. You look at it from one angle. It's why I would put a nameplate in one place. That's where it gets displayed from. It's not supposed to be moved around. I guess if I was doing a, a more competitive piece, I would at least tidy up the back. But I mean, on a lot of them, they're, they're, they're not like that at all. I photograph them from that point. They're supposed to be looked at from that point. You can look at them from above and all of that sort of stuff. But I think I, I, I have a, a sneaking suspicion that the last time I was on here, we might have talked about this, that I only I tend to only focus on my models, whether it be an, a piece of armor or an aircraft or whatever, on one side more than the other, because I know that I'm only going to really look at it from that side if I display it in that way. I, I, aircraft, for instance, jets tend to be come from top right to bottom left. That's that's how I display them. Second World War aircraft go from bottom right to top left. If you look at a Spitfire, it always looks better three quarter view from above from behind going forward to p51 mustang does the same thing so i tend to focus on that side it, it may be because i'm right-handed i don't know there might be some psychology behind it and it's the same with dioramas i tend to i've noticed a lot of my dioramas are all annotated in pretty much the same way the vehicles tend to sort of drift off in that direction as well you know so i tend to sort of focus only on 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 one side and the the ultimate extension of that thought process is the archer because the archer is actually painted in that way it's painted with a point of focus of light so when you look at that diorama everything is illuminated from the right hand side coming down so all of the roof is illuminated the side wall the pillars the tops of the pillars the vehicle everything is illuminated from that section and everything on the other side that's in shadow it's much darker it's not as painterly everything behind the walls that's in shadow isn't really painted properly it's blocked out but it isn't so i've got sort of focus that goes kind of goes through the diorama and it's something that i i've sort of I've found more and more interesting over the sort of the the years and certainly this year I, i've kind of looked at it along those lines so there is no turning it around i'm not you know don't turn it around if you turn it around you're basically just going to see open expanses of unpainted styrofoam on the other side of the building it feels like i'm it's a bit like you know when you look at um you, you see behind the scenes of movies movie sets and you see them on the screen and they're they're complete and you can see these amazing you know wild west streets with cowboys going down on horses and and everything looks and it just looks like a, a a sort of a turn of the century kind of street in Texas or whatever. And then the camera pans back. And as it pans back, you can kind of see buildings in the background from the cityscapes or, you know, you can see where the cameras are and all of those kind of things. So I, I guess that that's almost an extension of of the fact that a lot of my my modeling goes into print i i very much discussed this in the in in something that i i wrote recently in that my job in all of this is to is to build three-dimensional replicas to create two-dimensional images i distill three dimensions down into two because it goes on the page and you look at it on the page and i'm and i'm sort of i'm basically asking people to sort of forego their own experience to understand what this thing 
is in the round in the in the kind of in the flesh really but it's a cheat my model my diorams are a cheat they're only there to be seen from that point and, and i don't worry about focusing on kind of anything else if i went back into competition which i'm never going to do but if i went back into competition i would then have to reconsider that i'd have to think yeah, people are probably going to look at this from the other side of the table. So I probably need to have a look at, at what's on the other side of the action, what's out of out of shot, if you like. But as it stands, I'm, I'm happy for people just to see the bits that I've finished and ignore the rest, I think, is the um, kind of the way I go with all of that. You mentioned one very important thing when, when you talked about uh, not including, let's say, interiors of buildings. I don't know who talked about that in a book or in an article but everything that doesn't serve the main story needs to go away so i i read this all the time in the comment section uh when you're gonna build a house with an interior so we can see it from the back if it serves no purpose then why waste your time with it it has nothing to do with the main scene if it's a bombed building then sure definitely if it's a two-story building and the top story is bombed then make that see through from the back but the rest why bother no yeah the other thing yeah the framing framing of the scene or dressing the scene uh with with nice walls and everything i kind of like to go the extra mile and i like to dress up the backside as well even when i was trying to integrate the f- large French house into the diorama. I did a lot of sanding and filling so it would be, look seamless with the wooden sides of the scene. It's not really important, really, because I'm not even showing it in a video. In the final 360 shots, I always make a cut because there's nothing really going on there. And But on the other hand, I, I don't know, maybe it's... Uh, little bit of perfectionism in me but it makes me happier when i know that everything outside the diorama is clean and tidy and that's the other thing because okay this is kind of subjective and everyone has different opinions about it what color should be the sides of the diorama i personally like black sides because they're unassuming they don't draw any attention uh wooden sides with some wood stain are nice they look a little bit too fancy to me and maybe a little bit old-timey, but but they're cool. And mm. there's one thing that always makes me think hard. Sometimes you see dioramas, for example, Per Olav does it, when the sides are covered in photographs or it's a cloth with a print on it, be it a map or some historical photos or whatever. Uh, it looks gorgeous, but I'm not quite sure it serves the purpose you know it it makes the whole piece look beautiful but i I was having a discussion with an actual artist who makes paintings about this and he said yeah black or dark gray something that's unassuming because if you go to an art gallery those paintings they're not displayed in you know intricate golden weathered whatever picture frames and that's basically what the sides in on the diorama are there it's a 3d picture frame so yeah that's that's up to everyone's own taste but i personally like to keep everything nice clean tidy you know smooth straight because maybe it's a little bit of a childhood trauma but i i attempted dioramas when i was younger like 15 16 but i never finished them and it was the main reason was because i 
completely botched the fr the frame of the diorama the size and everything they started warping sometimes they started falling apart and what was the point then you know when the diorama wasn't holding even when it wasn't even holding together and i knew it would look awful and okay maybe people wouldn't know this but i i would know it, it was there and i think the worst case is when you have unpainted styrofoam or his pens okay if it's not going to be visible then it's cool <laughs> but i've seen i've seen a lot of dioramas or sceneries that are beautiful but they are just plopped on a piece of that large bubble that white styrofoam and it's just sticking mm. out of it it's like it's carved with a knife and it's maybe it's painted brown or whatever but it doesn't look nice it's like it's part of the presentation you know this goes back to i, I agree with you about the black and i think it goes back very much to um certainly in terms of the the construction of, of the scenes. A lot of the, the, the recent dioramas have been based on, on kind of styrofoam plinths that are fitted into picture frames that are black. That are, I either keep black as they're supplied or I spray them flat black and, and that mm. kind of thing. Yep. And then I have the sort of the edges would be the, the styrofoam or whatever. But they're always painted black as well. And the other thing that I do as well is that I airbrush around the edge of the diorama in flat black. So basically it goes from that black edge into almost like a graduated finish onto the diorama that creates, and then it sort of softens everything up and you can kind of see it and it flows from, from that. If I was building, again, I'd go back to this because I think it's different. If I'm, if I'm building for display or I'm, I'm building for competition, if I was taking them on to Euro Militaire or wherever I, I was going, there would be a different thought process, but it's very much about, for me, it's very much about creating something that is going to be a tool to use for publication. So, and often what that means is that the, that although the piece will be photographed in the round, often you can see the whole diorama on a photograph. Most of it will be photographed in detail or photographed with a background behind it, which I will crop out to make it look as natural as possible. But I very much agree with you on that. I think presentation is really important. And I've seen some stellar work out there destroyed completely by poor presentation, uh, you know, where you've had a diorama that's amazing. Um, one of them that really, really stands out, actually, is the Paris gun that Louis Prunot built. If you've ever looked at that diorama, and there's lots of photographs, obviously, in, in the super dioramas book that, that Francois did. But if you look at the picture of him, he's on the grass and he's got his arms down like that and the diorama is in front of him. It's on a piece of, like, laminated hardboard. That's what he's used for it. And basically, it's just been kind of rough cut around. And then he's, he's put cardboard on the top of it to create the concrete base of the model of the diorama and then built everything up around it. It's not presented at all. It's it's just done. He's almost built it just so that he can carry it around on this piece of on this piece of board or whatever. It's a very strange kind of thing. And um, I, I found that kind of in, quite incongruous when I saw the, the actual sort of diorama in the book and that kind of thing but yeah i very much agree with you presentation is so important with dioramas for them to be successful and for you to put them out but i i, I again I, I agree with you over the black i've i've used black for years as as a base um mainly because there's nothing cheaper than going out and buying a black picture frame and, and using that as your as your kind of base you know that you don't need to go out to a to um you know to a, a wood shop and get something cut that's nice and neat and tidy and then spray it or whatever you can just go out and get something like that and and they come in that you know from the cheap end up to sort of way more expensive um products um black always seems to show it off 
I, I'm not sure how I feel about the, the printed photo edges and, and all of that sort of thing. I, I, I honestly, I agree with you. I think it can look spectacular. Um, but to me, it just looks like it distracts from what's on the, in the diorama. And if the first thing I see is that edge, then I'm not focusing on what's actually on the plinth. I'm, I'm sort of, that's taking away slightly. It's like watching, watching a movie with subti subtitles. You're always yes. halfway focusing on, on, the, on the titles. And the other thing as well is about that is if you need all of those embellishments to tell the story or to tell the viewer what your diorama's about, maybe you've not hit the mark with that. I mean, for, for me, if I'm doing you know, a vignette that's got a vehicle and some figures on it, I don't really need to explain that. It's a vehicle and some figures. So, But if you've got a, a story that you need to tell or it's based on an actual photograph or it's based on a you know an event or something like that, then add some literature next to it. Do a little, you know, presentation next to it or something, but keep the, the, the base as simple as possible. And But I don't know. Maybe it's... Maybe it's just something I just don't necessarily understand. I don't, I, I don't know, but I'm not, I'm not a big fan of it, I have to say. But again, you made an interesting point about how you spray a little bit of black around the diorama. So you're, basically your dioramas are like a cutout of the real world, but the edges are slightly feathered. You know, they are yeah, slightly they're feathered. Smaller. Yeah. Yeah. In my case, they're straight, sharp cutouts. There's no feathering around the edges. But there's, there's another thing. It kind of goes two ways because I think the part a part of the presentation is when everything is neatly contained inside of the diorama, but not in a way when it looks like it's arranged in this confined space. I was talking about that that in the A7V diorama video when I was placing the wood scatter on the, on the ground. Like, yeah, make it tidy, contain it into the diorama, but don't make it look as if I was trying, you know, to squeeze all of that rubble in there. So when mm. I was gluing it in place, I made a lot of those sticks uh, protrude from the diorama, but once they were firmly glued in place, I cut them carefully so yeah. they would be flush with the sides. But on the other hand, sometimes I think this can improve on the diorama. When you're, for example, trying to portray motion as if the tank is almost running away from the scene, you know? Let's say a tank running over a hill. So then the diorama itself, the base can be smaller, you know? Yes. Or there, there can be many other scenarios where you can use that to your uh, advantage. But again, there is something satisfying knowing that the... Again, it goes back to what I was talking about earlier when I like the sides being clean, straight and smooth everything. It also applies to all these elements on the ground or even in the air telegraph lines for example when i was cutting the telegraph lines on the yak panther diorama i used the straight edge that goes all the way up and i carefully cut them flush with the size yeah. of the diorama down there you know and yeah then it's satisfying when you're for example arranging your dioramas in a display case and you know you can just slam them against the side <laughs> of the you know and nothing gets get, nothing nothing gets damaged I mean, that, that happened, the, the Archer diorama features a corner building, and I did the same thing. I had a, a giant, you know, right angle straight edge, put it against my deck so I could work out the, the shape of the roof on the, on the top. And, and it sort of took me a while. And then I had to sort of work out exactly how to annotate that building so that it, so that when you look down, you could see that the, the, the roof lined up exactly with the, with the line of, of the building. Nobody would ever be able to see that in the photographs, but I kind of wanted to make sure that it was like that and there was no 
there was no sort of off points with it really that's that's certainly something i try and get as much as i can it, it makes it sound like i'm completely fly about the way that I, I i sort of design these things but like i say everything has to line up from that viewpoint so so everything would need to be in place and where it needs to be so i don't have things misaligned for instance there is a building there's a pillar next to it a gate another pillar and a, and a wall and it sits on a piece of on a small section of pavement sidewalk and i made sure that they line up perfectly so i put a straight edge against the edge of the of the pavement so that when all of the other elements came in they butted up against that straight edge and i marked them out so that when you look at it they're perfectly in line they're not off so that you you're not distracted slightly by that but going back to what you said about uh, about sort of uh, you mentioned almost kind of like in passing the idea of, of of size of diorama my approach has always been to make a diorama or a vignette as small as i possibly can to get the action across and that way you're focusing the viewer down to a smaller piece as possible. They don't have to see anything superficial around that. Then, you, then you're not running in the risk of having areas that you have to fill with accessories or features simply because you've got some space on a diorama that's that's a, away from the, the, the core part of it, the vehicle or the figures or the building or, or, or whatever. Uh, and that's awesome. People will say, well, how, how do I approach diorama? What, what's, what, what would you suggest? And I always say, make it smaller. I've had friends who've, who've built dioramas and it's they, they've been like 18 inches by 18 inches and there's been a small building and then there's been a couple of vehicles and some figures and everything and you know and they go what do you think and I go make it smaller make it a third of the size you'll still be able to tell that story you'll still have the you can still have the the vehicles in there and the building and everything cram it in a, a guy got in touch with me uh, this week talking a, a, about that and he was saying that one of the things um, with the archer was that it goes through a gate goes through the gate and there are wooden gates on the other side of it and he said you wouldn't have had a 17 pounder gun firing through that gate because the blast would have made the the gates just basically flop all over the place and, and everything and he said did you consider ha- making it bigger so that it looked like it was kind of away from from the action so that you you wouldn't have had the physics involved of, of a gun blast. And I said, absolutely not. Because if I was to do that, I would basically be diluting my idea uh, away from the way it was. With dioramas, one of the things that you've very much got to do is you've got to heighten reality. Every successful diorama is a heightening of reality. It's a high, it's, it's, it's very much like a two-dimensional painting. You're trying to hook people into something or, or a film or a book or if you watch, you know, you, you watch a, a war film. Saving Private Ryan, a good example of that. You watch Saving Private Ryan. It's heightened reality, but you're not losing the, the core part of the, of the idea because of that heightening of reality. It's actually drawing you in more. The ones that I like the most of my own work, and I would never judge anybody else's work on this basis, but the, the ones that have been the most successful for me have been the ones that have been the smallest and most restrictive in terms of space. The Archer, I think, is, the, is, is probably one of my all-time favourites. The Panther that I did last year, Once a Hunter, which is the very old Tamir Panther in the ditch with the with the cat on it and the pigeons flying everywhere. It's very is is as small as I could get that model onto a base without it doing what Martin talks about and having bits hanging off, you know, having the tracks hanging over the edges or the gun barrel hanging over the edges or whatever. If that's the smallest I could get that get that piece and tell the story. And and that's kind of what I like. The ones I feel are not as successful tend to be the ones that are that are bigger and more open in terms of space where I've had to fill with superficial accessories or structures or whatever that that weren't necessary 
in the first place. And what causes that a lot of the times is that you've bought a base, a picture frame, or you've bought a base or, or whatever, and you're going to use that base no matter what. And it's the same with, you know, with, with kind of buildings or or whatever you've bought a building you're gonna you're gonna use it in that space and you're hamstrung by by what you've you're, you've decided to use in terms of what you're going to put the diorama on or what you're going to put with the diorama and all of that kind of stuff. And if you have a building that's too big for the tank that you're putting in front of it, for instance, you're then going to find that the rest of the diorama enlarges itself around those two pieces unnecessarily. Whereas if you created a building that was, that was very much more in, in sympathy in terms of size with the, with your, with your vehicle, then it would work more successfully. I've got a, a, a diorama building that I've had for oh god years made by Royal Model and it's a it's beautiful it's a a, a very tall it must be almost I guess ten inches tall twelve inches tall and it's of a, a of a section of an Italian kind of building an Italian kind of house and it's it's two levels and it's got steps on it and everything I can't find anything to put with it that makes sense that that that, that goes with it that balances out the size of the building with the size of the of, of the a vehicle the only thing I could think of would be something along the lines of like an elephant or something like that you know that was operated in Italy or yeah an elephant and and but even then, I feel like the building would dominate the scene so much that I, I, I just haven't used. I've never used it. I just, just don't know what to do with it. So that's that's definitely something that I would, I would bring into play with everything I do. Make it if you think it's small enough, then make it ten percent smaller and just force everything into that space. And once you get it into that space, you, your idea is you, it means that you don't have huge amounts. It, it what it might do, your diorama might replicate reality perfectly and it might be perfectly accurate but as a scene it probably doesn't work as well as if you just pushed everything together and and had it in place um and like i say it's just the way i've approached it over the years and and on the whole it's worked probably there are exceptions to that which i could think of and really don't want to admit (laughs) on a podcast like this but yeah that's 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 certainly i remember a, um a guy had commissioned me to do a to do a diorama and he said what i want you to do is i want you to build this panther i want you to put it in a field here's the base i want you to put it in a field and then i want you to use this rearming crew and paint all of those figures and i also want you to have the engine deck open and i want you to have the have the these figures working on the, the engine and i want you to put a tree in it and i want it to be like all grass and everything anyway by the time this diorama so i did exactly what he wanted i, I didn't deviate from his plans it made absolutely no sense this diorama at all but it, it was what he wanted he paid me i did what he wanted honestly if he'd asked me to pa- paint it pink with blue spots i probably would have done that if that's what he wanted but by the time i'd finished i got a di- i got a panther and we all know how big a 35th scale panther is not a huge thing and it was sat in a base that was essentially 18 inches by 18 inches of just grass field and then a tree in the top corner. So basically around this model, you got a model that would have co- that covered less than 20% of the area of this base. And there was nothing else on this base other than grass. And I said, there you go. That's it. It's all finished. Oh, I really, really like it. I said, you do realize I could have got all of that under that tree in a space a quarter of the size of that base and it would have looked better and he went well i hadn't really thought of that but that was the way it was and I, and today and i looked at it i remember a friend coming up to me saying i've seen this diorama over there in a glass display case he says bloody awful he said it's just got all these figures on it 
He said, it's, it doesn't make any sense. It's just got ammunition on it. It's got a big tree, you know. I went, yeah, I built that. And he, and he sort of flushed a bit. And, and he kind of looked at me and he went, no. And I said, yeah, I built, I built that. And he was mortified that he slagged off something that I, that, I, that I built. But I said, mate, he asked me to build it like that. It was completely unsuccessful. Terrible diorama. Terrible. And uh, I don't know what he did with it and whether he, he kept it. It was a big kind of display case company and everything. I never saw it again, and frankly, I didn't want to. It was terrible, 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 terrible. It's what it is. It's what we get asked to do. <laughs> this is actually why I, for example, never use picture frames for my, my dioramas. It's always a block of styrofoam that's just laminated. And the biggest advantage of that, and I think uh, foam cutter is one of the most valuable diorama modeling tools you can own because it allows you to make your diorama as customized and fit to your needs as po- as, you, as you possibly can get. It's just it's perfect because, like you said, Spence, when you have a little bit more space over there and you just need to fill it with something, it already gives you that feeling when you're just constructing the basic shape of the scene. Like, yeah, that's not really it. And why not be happy with your work even in the initial stages, right? Like, yeah, this is perfect. This is going to be so cool when it's done, right? And yeah, I had... It's like the whole composing thing. It's just co- composing with everything, figures, size with the drama, main viewing angle, everything. It's like when you compare it to, let's say, to movies, composition is like a script to a movie. And then the actual techniques, the fun stuff, so to say, you know, is the CGI, the lighting, the actors, prop, movie props, and so on. So when you, you can even make a comparison with your most favorite and least favorite movies, right? Like in my case, for example, it's like comparing movies from Chris Nolan to movies from Michael Bay, you know? Michael Bay's movies are bombastic, they look good, but they're boring and dumb, you know? While Chris Nolan, his movies are nice to look at and interesting to watch. So that's like a difference between well-composed and badly composed diorama. The techniques themselves, the execution of trees, grass, vehicles can be amazing. But if it's not composed well, it's just not so exciting to look at. And even an old diorama with outdated techniques, like from 15 years ago, if it's well-composed, it's still going to be pretty nice to look at even today. You know, drilling, drilling into that question, Martin... When you're looking at a table full of dioramas, what are the elements that you think really set the work apart from others? So what what captures your eye and draws you in? Boy, I wasn't on a model show since I started building dioramas and I didn't really care about them before. So I honestly don't know. <laughs> but no, really, I think it's the overall presentation. So again, it needs to be, it needs to look not professionally made, but it needs to look like it, some care went into it, you know? And whether it's some vertical elements or if it looks compact or there's something, just one thing that's interesting about it, or if it's using vivid colors, for example. That's something I like about Volker's work. Like he likes to use vivid colors. Like his grass is always super green. Greener, greener than your greenest grass, you can imagine. And that always catches my eye. So, yeah, something like this combined with nice presentation is what will, you know, catch my attention. Same question, Spencer. Um, I, I'm kind of, yeah, I, I feel the same way. I, I'm, I've been a big fan of Volker Bambanek's work for a long time. So, And I agree with you. 
it is vivid when you look at it. It, it. it is set apart because it's so bright. That's something that I've uh, I've I've sort of learned to use over the years is brighter colours and and the and the dioramas that I like the most tend to be like that. They don't tend to be overly somber kind of pieces. I think that question's you know really difficult because we see so many dioramas now, so many things online um, that to see something that's eye catching and unusual and different is really it, it can be difficult amongst the sort of the chaff. But it's I think it's about seeing something where you go, that's a good idea, that's a neat idea. Um, and I go back to my to my point earlier about seeing something that you know captures a, a reality. A, albeit heightened my the thing that i like the most though does tend to be the smaller details when you look in a diorama and and volker is exceptionally talented at this he will put you know he'll put something on a wall of a building that you haven't quite noticed before he'll put a you know put a a modern diorama and he'll put a satellite dish on the wall of the diorama and he'll have all the wiring that goes away from it i i like that i like the those tiny little details where you're you're drawn into it, you look at it and go, God, I hadn't noticed that. That's that's kind of cool. To me, it's not always about technique. Uh, technique's useful, and technique is is something that we all aspire to. We all want to be the, as good as we can be. We want to be the best model makers that we can be. But I go back to what I talked about a, a, an hour or so ago when I mentioned Aid Station, the Shepain diorama. If you look at that now, I don't believe that it would, chances are it wouldn't cause any kind of ripples. If that was dropped on a table at a major show, you'd look at it and go, yeah, it's kind of okay. It's really rough and ready around the edges and, and all of that. But there is something about it that is 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 almost perfect. It's almost like looking at, a, you know, if you look at two-dimensional paintings, Trump Loy comes into, into play, doesn't it? You're looking at it and you can see the detail. But when you look closely, it's not really there. It's just a, it's just a, a sort of a, an imitation of what you think is how the eye is tricked around. And to me, sometimes simplicity is 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 more appealing than complexity. I think uh, we went through a period with with Euromilitaire going back ten years now, almost, where you'd see enormous dioramas massive panoramic um, scenes that would turn up and they'd be incredibly involved and they'd be brilliant and all that sort of stuff. And then occasionally you'd see something that was tiny that you would have on there and you'd go, actually, that's that's much nicer because there's something really elegant about it. There's something where, you know, the guy has just sort of sat down and it's he's kind of captured a moment in time. That's all you want. You're just capturing something. Um, and hasn't tried to be too overly fussy or overly clever or overly involved. It's just captured that point. And to me, that's that's way more kind of appealing, I think, when it comes to dioramas. And but I do like the. I I, I have to say I, I I like I like I like them to be. I like the ones that I've liked the most over recent times tend to be quite painted. If that makes sense, a bit they're sort of quite painterly. They're I like that that dry brushing and, and washing and weathering and where everything's highlighted so that you can see all of the detail. I don't like things to blend too much into the background. And and sometimes you can see a diorama where that's where it hasn't done that. I like to be able to see detail as much as, as anything else. But 
not overly so. God, it's such a complex question, that. I, 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 I don't know. Why do you like a p- piece of music? I think, you know, why, why, is it, why, why is a joke funny to you? Why, why do you like... Sometimes I watch a piece of TV, a, a TV programme everybody's loved, and I go, that was just awful. And it's Dunkirk. Christopher Nolan was talking about Dunkirk, um, the film. I hated absolutely hated every single second of it. And yet other people that I'd spoken to, whose opinions I respect greatly, said it, that they loved every minute of it. So it's funny that your that dioramas, much like music or films or TV or anything like is so subjective that one person is going to love something, another person is going to is going to look at it and go, doesn't do anything for me, doesn't really tick any boxes. And I'm, and I'm sure that's the same you know, I, I guarantee you that my work will split people right down the middle. 50% will like it, love it, and 50% will think it's just rubbish, not worth looking at. That's just that's just the nature of a subjective medium like building models. And it's something that we just have to accept that, that we're doing something that's incredibly subjective. It's not, it, it's unquantifiable in terms of, of what we what we look at what we see and what we enjoy seeing when we're looking at miniatures. It almost sounds like, I mean, Martin mentioned uh, the same thing that you just did with regards to a single moment, a moment of peace. So there's not a lot of drama. It's almost like maybe a candid photograph versus a posed photograph of a person. That resonated with me completely, what Martin said there. And uh, it sort of reassures me slightly because other than pinned down, which was a necessity, I, I by necessity had to use a certain number, of, certain type of figure for that. So it created an action scene. I refuse almost point blank to do anything, any action scenes at all. Refu- uh, uh, maybe that's the sort of the subconsciously pacifistic nature of my, my mentality. But I, if I'm building war machines, I don't really want to build them in in action scenes showing people being killed i am interested in the history i'm interested in the technology i'm interested in in the whole thing that goes around with it and the machines look cool you know f-15 eagles look amazing and i love them as a piece of technology and as an you know a work of elegance and beauty but the idea that i'm going to create something when you look at it and it's got dead bodies on and people shooting each other in the face that's never going to happen in my scenes i'm never going to build that kind of model I, I just refuse it's not it's not something i would ever enjoy doing and i just don't see myself doing it so to, so for martin to say that whether it's a conscious thing on, on his part is it conscious i don't know whether it's conscious thing on your part or not um, but it's certainly a conscious thing on my part I, I i refuse to do that when i was talking about trying to make every small uh, bit of a diorama or anything as interesting as possible so now we have here a, a picture of a small portion of Volker's diorama. It's a corner of a building, of a rural, bu- rural building. And what I was trying to say there, it's, it's perfectly captured here. This is this is a picture I often use as a reminder of how to make something more interesting. So basically it's a brick building, right? But it's not a, your ordinary, everyday boring brick building. For example, the corner of the building was damaged and it, it's been repaired by with stones. That automatically makes it more interesting. The small window above and below it, there's concrete. Um, I don't know what it's called. You know, it's cast from concrete. That adds another level of detail and texture. The the door, it's not just a door. There's that letter letter box hanging on it. You no, know? and for example, the stairs they're chipped. There's moss on them. There's grass growing 
uh, around the house. There's nettle, there's poison ivy. Then you have signs. There's one advertisement hanging from it. So it adds to that corner. It adds another dimension that goes away from the building, so to say. You know, you have no parking sign there. You have street signs there, uh, basically setting the scene where it's, where, where it's taking place. You have wood there. You have wooden flashing under the roof. So it's just a, maybe this whole piece of a building is five by five centimeters in size, you know, and there's so much going on there, but it doesn't feel cluttered. And that's the hard part, making it balanced. So... Yeah, whenever you're doing anything in a diorama or even on a model, always try to uh, try to think like, how can I make this more interesting? How can I add something special there? You know, and that, like Spencer said, it when when the, when the presentation and composition of the diorama already draws you in, make it worth it. Getting more close to it, you know, getting closer to it. Mm. Yeah, that is adding as much as you can. I think is really is really important. I guess you've all seen the workshop diorama that I built 10 years ago. It, unbelievably so, 10 years ago. That workshop diorama is still the most involved single piece, single piece of work I've ever put together. E- even now, I sort of look at the photographs and think, can't quite work out how I managed to do that because there's so much detail in it. And I worked on the principle that if I was building a workshop, if I was doing something like that, then it would be packed full of, of, of junk. It would be packed full of stuff. You know, the benches would be covered with things. And, and it, was, it was almost that if I thought I'd put enough junk in and around the shelves and all of those kind of things, then add another 50 more items or whatever. Because, and also make it as random as possible. Because one of the things that Volker's work tends to engender in you, and, and when you look at it, is that level of detail when it comes to accessories and his eye for for kind of tiny little features that are almost not seen first time round. you look at them and you look at the the, the kind of the photographs in them and and if you look at the the book that that was produced um that's got a load of volker's work and it was one of a series of books i think was produced by one of the spanish publishers you look at those dioramas and there's so much detail in them there's so many little features it's obvious that that's his. That's it's obviously it's almost his driver, isn't it? When you see his work, it's almost his 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 whole being is around micro detailing his dioramas. I can't imagine that Volker would do something like one of Shep Payne's dioramas where it's stripped back completely. His his whole thing is about detail painting and and accessorizing. That's the best sort of description, I think. He loves to accessorize the dioramas and, and the accessories almost become as important as the core piece. You, you mentioned earlier on about the, the, the Paladin diorama that he did. I, I, I still think that's my single favorite piece by him. I think it's his best diorama and I don't think he's made a better one because not only is it set perfectly with the, with the vehicle coming up off the road, coming off onto the road one of the things i love the most about that is there's there's a bin isn't there there's a like a a wheelie bin a a, you know a kind of that's overflowing with rubbish and there's all sorts of rubbish around the base of it and everything that's almost a vignette in itself on that diorama if you look at it you could almost build that piece put it on a separate little base and and people would love it because that is that's capturing a piece of 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 time right there right it's it is really kind of beautiful. Oh, that's which is lovely. Yeah, it's lovely. And again, like you said, he's a master of detail. But to me, he's also master of 
composing and presenting his dioramas as interestingly and as unusually as possible. Because, for example, that diorama is put on an oval base. And what it does with the whole scene, especially with the house, it gives it a very dynamic and interesting shape. It basically, it's like there's like two pointy mountains, the roof of the house. It looks like that. And it's yeah. super interesting. His his diorama with another stuk that's in the in the mud in the muddy scene it has a bridge, but you can only see the bridge when you look at the diorama from the from you know, from another side. It's just composed oh, okay. so interestingly. And yeah. when you mentioned your workshop diorama, I also it also reminded me of something because when you're composing a diorama, nothing should be perpendicular. To yes. each other. Yeah, everything should yeah. be sort of misaligned. But when you're making a diorama that's that's set inside, be it a factory or a workshop, you're limited by the shape of the diorama. So the walls of the scene, so to say, they need to follow the size of the diorama. You know, you, you can't place the workshop slightly sideways because suddenly you would have an open hole in one corner. So then you're kind of limited. But again, you need to compose everything that's going on inside as interestingly as possible because the walls yeah. are basically a backdrop. Yeah, that actually happened on that diorama. That diorama was built with an L-shaped wall on it that I that I dropped onto the base and I kinked slightly so that it was 10 degrees off or something so that it so that the base wasn't completely rectangular. And then what happened was that as I was laying the, the rest of the scene out I found that at the front of the diorama, there was an open kind of hole. So if you imagine, look at it from the top and you're seeing the back wall go from right to upper left and then the side wall going from upper left and then dropping down and hitting the, the, the kind of the, the edge of the base with about three or four inches to spare. And I looked at it and it just didn't work at all. I couldn't get it to work. And, and I was looking at it going, well, that just doesn't, that looks just off. And I ended up adding another section of wall into that place that kinked out slightly. So when you see that diorama, it's actually got a stepped wall on uh, that runs down the, the, the left-hand side of the diorama, which oddly, I don't know if you, uh, if you guys remember this, my, that diorama was copied wholesale by a Chinese modeler who, who copied the, the, the setting and all of my accessories and pretty much everything as I'd built it. It was, it was almost, it was, it was eye-watering how, how close it was to, to my original diorama. He'd also incorporated the mistake in it, the mistake being this additional section of wall. So, and that, and I looked at it and thought, he's actually added that additional section that I put in there to fill that space, thinking it was a piece of design. It wasn't a piece of design at all. It was just because I'd messed up. And one of the things that, that, that I, I found with that diorama as well is, and, and this is, is something that I think Volker excels at, and, and, and I think you've touched on slightly, you touched on it a, a little while ago, is this need to think outside of straight lines. A lot of people, when they build dioramas, they think in straight lines. So you have a building, you have a vehicle by the side of it, then you have some figures and everything kind of fits in and around that. And one of the things I've, I've tried to do as much as possible, mostly successfully, sometimes completely unsuccessfully, is to think in asymmetry. So don't create things that are symmetrical. Don't create things that, that, are, that look intentionally balanced against each other because life doesn't really work like that. I remember when I was laying that workshop diorama out, I got 
it's got a machine shop on one side with benches and then on the other side it's got it's got the sort of the stock area with the that's got the Sherman in it and all the junk around it. And I, I went out, I went over to um, to a, a local supermarket and, 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 and I went through the magazines for engineering magazines as, uh, and that kind of thing. And I found one that was basically just workshops. It was people's engineering workshops with lathes and milling machines and all that sort of stuff. And I was looking through it and I was looking at it thinking, God, these, these places look like they've, they've literally been dropped from the sky. That they've just opened a building up, dropped all the junk in, and when it's landed, that's where they've left the left the pieces. There didn't seem to be any order to it. There didn't seem to be any thought process. It wasn't like they'd gone in like with modern factories where you go, well, we need all of these lathes to run down the wall. We need all the racking to run the other way. We need health and safety to be to be an issue. It was almost like we'll just put these pieces where we can get them because they're big and heavy, and we can't be bothered to move them another three feet. And we'll sort of see how they work. So that's what I did. And I, I, I sort of laid them out. And then I sort of twisted them around into places that I didn't think they would naturally be placed. And it worked much better by, by having things in random spots, making it more random and less manicured, uh, I think is a better description. The diorama was more interesting to look at because you weren't looking at something that looked like it had been plotted on a, you know, with on a gra- on graph paper. It looked like it was just there. It was it was much more natural and much more kind of realistic as a result of that. And I've tried to do that over the years with other dioramas that that I've created and made them offset and, and, and made people when you look at them be slightly disorientated by the ideas and disorientated by the setting because real life doesn't work in parallel lines. Real life doesn't isn't set that way. And certainly not in a war zone. If you're building, you know, a lot of the wars that we you do a lot of uh, of World War II, almost exclusively World War II. Well, those settings, if you look at, you know, books that have, have got photographs of vehicles in farmyards or whatever, they're all offset and juggled around and nobody's thought, well, I'll, I'll park. There's no parking bays on the side of a, of a Normandy farmhouse, for instance. The vehicle just gets planted where it is and left where it is. And if it's offset, I think sometimes that we, we as modelers fall into the trap of trying to be too clever and too neat and too tidy when real life isn't really like that at all. It's it's far more haphazard and far more interesting kind of as a result, I suppose. But yeah, yeah, that's that workshop diorama was as was as odd as I could get it in that sort of space within the restrictions of a of an L-shaped wall. It's it's not not easy to do that because you yeah you've you've kind of got to move it or move it around but yeah seeing somebody copy that diorama and copy the mistake was one of was one of uh, life's great pleasures. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, it was odd, but there you go. Yeah, yeah, it's weird. It's just randomised, isn't it? You know, it, it's sort of a random thing. I don't, I don't know. Well, and coming back to the picture of the corner of the building that Martin posted from Volker, it's sort of like finding that balance with enough details and enough layers and enough textures to make it look real, but not overdoing it to make it look artificial. Like you were saying, Spencer, the corner of the building was broken down and there were weeds and there were repairs, you know, and so you're kind of giving it that looked in look, but it's not planned. It doesn't look like it was planned to be that way. 
Yeah, uh, maybe Martin can sort of expand on this a little bit more because um, the um, the building that you created for when when you 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 did your video and showed how to sculpt it and then how to paint it and all of that kind of thing seemed to be inspired by Volker's work on that. Yeah. So when you when you created that building, were you were you intentionally trying to make it as detailed as possible and to try and put as many features as possible into it in the same way, or was that just something that that naturally evolved as the project was um, w- was completed? Yes, but again, I was limited by time, unfortunately. So I guess it it would have been more detailed or better if I had, you know, unlimited time, so to say. But I, I actually I need to open up some pictures of it because I don't really remember how it looks. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it, it was of course it was inspired by historical photographs showing a building with a large advertisement, and everything, and door leading to nowhere at the top. And then I just started Googling different pictures of brick houses, especially from France and everything. And even that book you mentioned, it's called Landscapes of War, uh, that has Volker's work in it. And it also has some reference pictures. So I used some, some of those real life references and I just broke it down into individual segments, like call it, let's say floors, for example, right? And each floor. Yeah, let's add this here. Let's add, for example, that piece of uh, concrete or whatever in the attic and and so on. Yeah, and then I didn't intend to add some of the final details that just came last, like, for example, the gutter or the downspout or the small... It's not even mainly visible. It's more visible from the side. There's like... There's one small thing uh, sticking out of the roof that's basically connecting the house with the telegraph pole with an extra cable, so to say. So it's sort of framing the scene from the front and the back. And there's also a large, let's call it tube for those cables that's going down the wall and entering behind the window. So... Yeah, and the same thing with the windows. I, for example, I printed them when I was making the, not assembly, when I was sculpting the building. And then as I was finishing it, like, okay, let's make, let's say one window completely intact. The others are going to be broken in different states of disrepair, of course. And let's put a wire mesh into one of them, you know, just to make it different and slightly more detailed. So sometimes it it happens from the beginning when I'm planning everything and then as I'm painting it, the vision of the final piece is getting clearer and clearer. Then I, then I sometimes uh, come up with more ideas on how to make it more interesting, so to say, or more detailed. Luckily, when you're working with styrofoam, you can always add to it. It's a very forgiving material. So that also simplifies things. But again, for example, you can even compose buildings in an interesting way, right? Like give the not, not how it's placed in a diorama, but the actual shape of the building. And for example, when I'm now looking at it, uh, it's basically a building with a shack built next to it that's built from stones. Now, I and I even realized it as I was painting the building that 
basically the roof of the building and the shack goes in the same direction, right? So you see the the roof of the main building from the front and you see the roof of the shack if you look from behind. Well, that's not really cash money, is it? Nowadays, I would, or even then, if I had more time to think about it, I would place the roof of the shack sideways. Mm. So they, they'd be pointing in different directions, giving it more texture, you know, more interest. Yeah. And you could enjoy that roof of the shack, actually, while looking at the diorama from the main viewing angle. Yeah. yeah so yeah um, that's 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 what I, you go back uh, go back to what i said earlier on about happy accidents sometimes it's it's that sort of simple little changes that that, that make a difference the archer with the with the vehicle sort of firing through the gates wasn't how i had that plan that model planned at all it was originally going to be quite a traditional diorama it was going to be a vehicle in a street sort of parallel to a to a building and and that was kind of going to be it and and it was it was really only I think I'd gone off and watched a bit of football on the tv or something and and the model and the building that I created were in here and and I sort of just I got really frustrated thinking I don't really like this it doesn't really work for me at all and I and I just picked the model up and I just pointed it through the gates just went bump sort of looked at it and thought that's it was like that's it. I've done it. That's how it's going to be. A lot of the times, I, I get the sense that you're you you like to kind of plan these things out, and I, I tend to do that as well. And, and often, I once I've settled on a diorama or a vignette, once I once I've planned that out, I get a three dimensional image in my head of exactly how it's going to look, and I never deviate from that ever. once I've got that image set in my head that's that's what I can imagine it on my desk but getting to that point of visualization tends to be where the where the stumbling blocks tend to be that I you know stub my toe on all the time and I, I kind of look at them and I go yeah I don't really like that and I think it's about I think the biggest difficulty with dioramas and planning and and creating anything um in this particular genre is to create something that's a little bit different from what you've seen elsewhere and it's one of the reasons why i find dioramas that that meld the meld a building with a vehicle and some figures so difficult to deal with and so difficult to to build and create into something that I, I think is interesting because you see so much of that. I'm trying to create, always trying to, to look at something where people will remember it. You know, they'll look at it and go, oh yeah, that's quite, that's quite a memorable piece that doesn't sort of blend in with other things. Um, but maybe the only way for me to do that is because I find that so tricky and it is to, to deal with those little details or create something that's just slightly off. You know, you talk about the wooden shack against the side of the building where where you've got them essentially facing the same way. But if you twisted one, you would have had something that was more natural, almost as if the whoever built the building had added the, 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 the that section on as a separate part and it had just become something completely randomised on, on, on the side of that. So it, it, it often these things do happen by accident. But I think that... The, the the haphazard is much better. Go back to I, I've now got that picture of of Volker's um, uh, model. When you look at that, one of the things that's so attractive about that building actually is 
it's not in any way manicured, is it? It's not, it's not like something you would see on a housing estate. There are things in there that I look that my favorite bit of that whole thing is the broken wall that section of the corner of the wall where it's broke and it looks like it's just got stones put in there just to fill the fill the space i think that's that's an amazing kind of thing it's that sort of random random area and almost the other thing about um volker's work and 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 i i guess other dioramas that i like don't you get the sense that it's almost in some cases like especially his world war ii scenes they're almost like um, three-dimensional um, cartoon renders, almost. You know, sort of animated scenes. The, the Japanese do this very well. They, they have this sort of anime look at things where it's got lots of detail in. Or, or if you play games, I'm currently playing Assassin's Creed Valhalla, where you've got that game design has almost kind of subconsciously come into the world of dioramas, you know, where you have those heightened maps that you have on call of duty or you know or, or or those those kind of games where you're looking at them and you could see that detail and you're wandering around and i get that sense from from volker that he's picking up on on other mediums not just model making he's not looking at necessarily at real life structures he's looking at other things he's he's drawing inspiration from elsewhere from he's drawing inspiration from the art world he's drawing inspiration from comic books he's drawing inspiration from from gaming design platform design that that kind of thing and it's all sort of manifesting itself into to his work his his work is almost unique actually i can't think of other diorama builders that create that create settings and and structures and scenes the way that he does it's interesting that you bring up anime because, you know, looking at the photo, it does almost have a, a little bit of a Miyazaki color palette to it because it's very vibrant. It's yeah. very detailed. It's very, it just has that aesthetic like a lot of Miyazaki's films have. That's a, that's an interesting comparison. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and Martin mentioned earlier on about, about grass being ultra green. You can see it in that. You can see that the bushes are ultra green. Whereas I would have, I would mute those down with, with yellows or sandy colors to make them look like they were, they were a little bit, you know, more weather worn. He doesn't, he has no pretensions to doing that at all. He just like paints it green. You look at it and go, yeah, that works perfectly in, in, in the settings that, that he's got. The eye, the eye likes it. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't distract from it. it. It's pleasing to look at, even though it is vibrant, which I think I agree with you. I think it's unusual. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Even though it's weathered as well. That's the other thing. He, he successfully kind of melds that, the idea of, of, of bright colors, vibrancy within dioramas and weathering. He's, he's not saying that you, your weathering is going to mute all those things down because it doesn't take away from how vibrant the dioramas look. He's still using bright greens, bright yellows, bright reds, all of those kind of colours, but you can still see the weathering in there. I think it's a really, I think that's a difficult trick to pull off actually and and um, and one that I admire greatly from his work. It's, uh, yeah, it seems like we spent a lot of time talking about Volker. He needs to pay us. I've I've been thinking about this the whole this whole time. Like this episode needs to be called "Simping for Volker Bimbinik." <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, he he owes us all lots of beer when we when we next bump into him. That's uh, that's all. Well, well, gentlemen, this has been fascinating. Everything I was hoping for and more. I really appreciate uh, the frank discussion into your own techniques and also talking to each other about this subject. Uh, before we go, Martin, want to start with you. Anything new uh, for your channel for Uncle Night Shift uh, coming up soon? Uh, I don't think so. 
<laughs> just just more more excellent video content you know more video more videos in the future of course as usual maybe uh, as we proceed Uh, into this year uh maybe i'll skip one week every now and then maybe two weeks like it already happened with the a7v because uh you know the pandemic is getting it's basically over and uh, this whole channel start started during the pandemic so i was ju- i was just a complete you know shut in and i was focusing on modeling all the time and now it's suddenly time to you know also live some real life and not spend like 14 hours every day just building models and making videos so i'm gonna try yeah, to no, focus no more helicopter rides though I'll, i hope so i hope not <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, hopefully we'll see more more uh, content, see your work continue to evolve. Obviously, your work is terrific. I'm a Patreon. It's a great, great value. Look forward to your content. And uh, you do a great job responding when I have a question or a comment or anything else. You know, for those of you out there, if you aren't a Patreon for Martin, consider it over on uh, patreon.com uh, slash nightshift. Spencer, with uh, the Legacy Collection, I believe volume two is, uh, do any time now, right? Volume two is done and posted out. It's all, it's gone. It's all, it's all finished. I've still got some left. There are, I, I overprinted slightly. So there are some, if anybody wants a copy of volume two, they are some left. But as far as the legacy co- collections concerned for me, it's a finished project. I'm not returning to it. Um, I, I've, I've done what I set out to do. I've, I've done the models that I set out to do. So it's time for me to move on really. Mainly because I think I was getting a reputation for only building old kits. And I, and that's not, and I, I was almost becoming a one trick pony where I was just doing nothing but, you know, kits from the 1970s. And I, I, I have other things to do. In terms of projects for me, I will be returning to, um, I'm, I'm going back to aircraft. I, I can exclusively reveal on this um, podcast that the next book that I'm about to do, that I'm currently working on, will be a book on the F 86 Sabre. So that will be the next book. And that will involve, and I can exclusively announce this as well because I haven't spoken to anybody else. It will involve me building, um, I haven't seen too many of these, it will involve me building an F-86A Sabre, of which there are no kits. In th- uh, I'm going to do that in 30-second scale. I'm going to do one of the um, Korean War Aces aircraft, which will, I think, ape the colour scheme that's in the, the old Matchbox kit. So that's. Uh, I think it's an aircraft that bears some, uh, is interesting enough to look at. I'm also going to be doing a, a series of books on teen series as well. So I'm going to be doing, uh, I've done one on F-14, so I'm going to be doing one on um, F-15, 16 and 18 as well. So they'll be coming out over the next sort of 12 12 months um sort of see how that how that goes so it i'm definitely returning to aircraft that that's how i'm gonna go also next week we'll see me launch the first of the three books i produced one on the spitfire one on p51 mustang one on the uh meshes mcbf 109e they'll be offered online They'll be offered as downloadable put books through Pocket Mags in the UK for the very first time. They're not available in print anymore. They were done as limited edition numbered volumes. They're going to be available through Pocket Mags, so you can download all three of those books, and that will be a way for people to see them and be able to read them around the world who missed out on the printed volumes. So that's kind of an exciting thing. And what that will mean is that all of the other books eventually that I've produced, they'll all be offered as as digital issues 
is with the possibility that I may do at least one book, uh, maybe more than one book, as digital issue only, not as a print version. So that so that gives me a chance to do something and, and develop that. Um, and finally, because I've got to kind of pay the bills, I guess, and this is my job, um, I, I'm looking at going down a similar route to Martin, but not with videos. I'm looking at going down that kind of Patreon route and seeing whether or not people would be interested in in supporting me via Patreon so that I can carry on doing what I'm doing and, and presenting material to people. The video part of it, I think it's covered by geniuses like Martin, so I don't really want to go down that that route and be and, and be doing stuff that that's not that's nowhere near as good as as what he does. But I'm I'm sort of looking into that at the moment. And it, it's an odd thing uh, I mentioned this earlier, but it's about getting the confidence to to believe that people would want to support you enough to do that so at the moment until I can work out what it is that that I'm offering each month um, via that kind of Patreon system I'm sort of keeping it on hold but if I can find a way of of, of giving people something that, that I think that they think will be value to support me e- each month then I'll, I'll go down that route and, but we'll see but those are the plans for the next 12-18 months we'll see we'll see how that goes in the meantime I'll hopefully keep chatting to you guys hopefully me and Martin and I'll our paths will cross at some point. That'd be a very nice thing to do. I'd, I'd look forward to that. So, but yeah, there you go. F eighty six saber. That'd be the next one. But if you want a legacy two book and actually a couple of there's a couple of volumes of legacy one as well still available. Just let me know. Although by the time this goes out, I've just thought by the time this goes out, unless I hold on to these, um, they may well have gone. Well, highly recommended. The legacy collection volume one's fantastic, and uh, I should have one of those copies of number two heading here soon. So anyway, uh, Martin Spencer, thank you so much, Ivan. Thank you for joining us as well. Um, this has been fantastic. Really appreciate your time. Uh, thanks for the discussion. This is just a treat. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. All right, listeners, I hope you enjoyed that segment with Martin and Spencer. They are two pillars in the scale modeling community. Really enjoyed getting to know them more in this in this latest interview. And if anything, I'm just super disappointed I was unable to make it. I had a family commitment, but it was it was great to hear from them both. Love having them back on. They are always welcome back, and we certainly thank them for their time. You know, right now we're going to segue into kind of our discussion topic. You know, we're gonna we're gonna talk about a lot of things. I think a c- common theme with some of us right now, maybe it's due to the season. You know, springtime, a lot more activities are going on. I think the bottom line though is bench time and the more importantly the lack there of it and you know I, I think it's I think it's important to talk about the hobby doesn't just mean sitting at the bench and working on the model the hobby for scale modeling from my perspective is all about enjoyment of scale modeling and it comes in various forms retail therapy has been a constant thing on my plate lately where if I get down in the dumps, I jump onto Sprue Brothers and my felt myself feels a lot better. It could be watching a YouTube video, what we talked about, or it could just be chatting with your friends. You know, we've we've had some good talks lately with some of us. We'll we'll just throw up a little a little room and and we'll get in and just talk. We don't we don't even sit at the bench sometimes, um, or we're at the bench. And we're not working. So I'd like to lead this discussion. I'll, I'll just give a little anecdote and maybe I'll kick it over to TJ or Scott to uh, to really dive in, but. You know the the focus that we just want to talk about is what what is bringing joy right now to the hobby that isn't at the bench. 
you know, as I mentioned, retail therapy is one. I'll start off. I bought the new Panzer III from Dosferk back in January. And lately I just haven't been able to get to the bench. But guess what? That beast showed up and I got it on Sunday and it was, it made me happy and it brought a lot of joy back to the hobby that I've, you know, sorely missed lately because of other commitments. And something simple as that, pulling out the reference books, talking to Jackson and a few others online about 3D printing possibilities, like that, that, that is what keeps the mojo going without laying paint, without clipping parts, without applying cement. So, you know, with that, I'd, I'd kick it over to you, TJ, to maybe talk about you haven't gotten much progress done on your bench, but I think there's a lot of other things going on hobby related that have kept you, you know, really in the saddle for that matter. Yeah, retail therapy, man. <laughs> hey, you guys can see the the wall of retail therapy behind me. Um, I love buying shit. <laughs> I just do. I really do. Yeah, I, I was showing you guys before. I I just happened to be on Sprue Brothers, of course, and um, I sort by new releases, and they had um, it's technically, I guess, Snowman models, but it's it's made by Tacom. Their DF forty one ICBM launcher, their Chinese ICBM launcher in one seventy second scale. I don't have any Chinese subjects, but you know what? It's a big, huge missile tube on a huge truck, and in seventy second scale, which I like, sure. Why not? You know, and that's just and getting it in my hands, even though I'm not going to build this thing anytime soon, but I got it today when I got home from work and I pulled all the sprues out and I was looking at everything and I was like, man, this is really cool. It's a, this missile is like, like 13 inches long. This thing's huge. That's one way. And, and really it's just like talking, you know, talking to people you know, our various modeling group chats. Cause um, I don't think it's been any secret to you guys, but I've not been modeling a lot at all lately. Um, for a number of reasons, some of it is beyond my control and some of it is in my realm of control. And for whatever reason, it's just not clicking with me right now, but just, uh, talking about modeling, you know, pretty much every day. Um, you know, I ghost out here every once in a while cause I get busy or don't have access to my phone or I just don't feel like, um, talking to anybody, but still at the end of the day, yeah, just, just being in, in engrossed in, in the hobby and the discussions about it just keeps me going. You know, and when I do have time to come down here and I'll, I'll crank something out, I, I know you guys, I don't think I mentioned it, but I'm, I'm working on another machine and creator kit that I started just, just for fun. It's, it's a prowler. It's my favorite of the SAFS kits. And I think last weekend I was like, you know what, I'm just, I'm just going to put this thing together. It's, I built a bunch of these. It, it's an easy build. Um, right now it's just sitting on my desk. It's all done. I just got to start painting it. But, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of what I do. Uh, it, top of the list, retail therapy. I like buying stuff. It's fun. That's why I have so many kits. Well, it makes it easy when Sprue Brothers will have it at your door in like 48 hours. <laughs> that is true. Um, I, I, I want to say I went on Sprue Brothers to buy a bottle of Tamiya LP paints of Insignia White because I want to use it as a base for my Prowler. That's why I was there. Oh, and to get, get some uh, rigging string because I want to you know, bend uh, an aerial on a Sherman down and, and mm-hmm. tie it. And I wanted that like stretchy spring. They had it. So I it's like, yeah, I'll buy this. And oh, I might as well just buy this <laughs> ICBM <laughs> truck that yeah, who knows? Sure. Why not? For sure. For sure. Like you said, retail therapy. I I shudder to think, you know, many people uh, differ in opinion of that. It, there's something about that brand new kit in the absence of model shows and being able to buy it. And again, Sprue Brothers, major kudos to them. They set the standard. They're faster than Amazon. I swear to God. So Scott, maybe I'll kick it over to you. You've You've done retail therapy, but maybe in a different sense. 
Yeah, just so you know, I mentioned earlier sort of some of my, I don't know if I want to call them struggles, but just learning the terminology, you know, the technology of 3D printing, going from FEP to NFEP for my VAT, you know, troubleshooting when a printer isn't working and figuring out I had a bad LCD, updating firmwares, you know, and then and then playing, you know, collaborating with other guys like Robbie Knopfs and Matt McDougall and you guys on, on settings, you know, just sort of learning that process like you would learn airbrushing or anything else. And so that's been really energizing my mojo for just traditional modeling, even though maybe that seems weird. But even more than that, for me, I think people that have been listening to the show, they know that for me, a big part of my hobby, as much as I love modeling, I've done, you know, been doing it since I was eight or nine years old. A big part of this hobby for me is very social. You know, my friendships with you guys and with a lot of other people mean as much to me as that little X-wing or something, you know, that I pull, you know, I have um, models from both of you guys in my case and you know, I never sell them. I mean, they mean too much to me because they represent that friendship. You know, Jim Bates came out here uh, to Salt Lake City and first we went to a Jerry Cantrell concert, which was incredible. Yeah, I'm a huge Alice in Chains fan. It was really, really great. We had a good time. And then we went up to Hill Air Force Base to their Air Museum, which is, I think, a really underrated uh, little museum. You know, they've got pieces like they just got an f one. 17 and a U2. They've got a Blackbird there, you know, really awesome. Uh, collection. But then we we hung out with with other buddies here in Salt Lake City. We got together and did build sessions. And I'll tell you, if you want to supercharge your mojo, help somebody with a problem. You know, I, I, most of the guys we were hanging with were aircraft modelers. And uh, John Vickis is in our group build and he has the uh, M3 CDL kit. And he started that and he is just lost. You know, he's a He's an aircraft modeler through and through, and, you know, I was able to kind of, you know, help him in in a very small way. And then same thing with Jim Bates, you know, he, uh, we we were working together on a little 48 scale firefly that he got, and I was trying to kind of help him with that. But anyway, yeah, that's a, that's a mojo supercharger. So if you're feeling a little bit low, you know, maybe get together with some of your buddies and, and model, or, you know, if somebody asks for some help, for me, that's really um, something that gives me a boost. Yeah, I'll echo that. You know, I'm I'm not going to be doing much building on Friday, but I'm going to go hang out with Brian Kreiner here in in Denver, and he's he's like when it comes to aircraft modelers, he's up there, you know, top of the list. And I'm super stoked to see his collection, see where he models, and you know, just learn and have and and even have talks outside of scale modeling. I think that's important to you know emphasize as well as you know we're all we're all gung ho for the hobby, but you know, I think one of the best parts about the hobby is the type of personalities you get to know. And, you know, we have a lot of conversations, you know, TJ, Scott <laughs> daily, if not hourly, and and some other groups as well, where, you know, we don't talk about the hobby uh, in some cases. And, and I think that's just as important sometimes uh, because you've created that, you know, special bond with a good friend and can lead to many other things. So the personal aspect of it is very important. And, you know, I'd ask our listeners, please feel free to chime in, you know, outside of the bench, what do you like to do hobby related or, you know, what, what keeps that alive? It could be reading a research book. It could be retail therapy. It could be watching YouTube, you know, share that. Feel free to chime in, let us know your thoughts. And to be honest, we could probably learn something else to uh, put in our portfolio of ways to enjoy the hobby. And we certainly thank your engagement. I think that's another important thing too, is 
the engagement from our listeners, you know, whether it's comments, feedback, likes on Facebook, everything, big, little, or anywhere in between is important and, and something that certainly helps me and keeps the focus on, you know, just a hobby and, and why it's so great and, and who's out there. So, well, I want to give a couple of shout outs, John. You, you brought that up. First of all, to all the people out in the posse that are contributing to our plastic posse group on Facebook, besides our main page. We also have a group page where anybody can post and man, the the building and the camaraderie on there lately has been incredible. So if you haven't been over there, go check that out. But you're going to see some amazing work and uh, some good people. And the other thing is, you know, some of the side chats that we have, you know, you mentioned other things besides the hobby. You know, we were giving Jackson Stanton a hard time a little bit earlier because he's very, very young. But uh, TJ had posted a really cool song in one of our, our chats. And so he went and got it and he loved it. So then he was like, okay, TJ, I loved it. So what else is there out there like this to listen to? And so TJ made a bunch more recommendations. I threw some stuff out there, but you know, we all have sort of maybe the hobby as the common bond, but that friendship, like you said, John really extends past just building plastic models. For sure. All right, guys. Well, I think that's about all. Uh, John, thanks for uh, kind of leading the episode this time. And um, even though we're shorthanded again, uh, you know, it's been a lot of fun talking to you guys. One of these days, I guess all five of us are going to have to get together to record an episode. Hey, it's one of the benefits of having so many hosts. Yeah, that way definitely. someone's always available. Yeah. I do. Mi- I do miss the proper English. I was hoping to get an <laughs> education, B- both of U.S. state facts and proper English. That's right. How many hours can we go consecutively without using the term lounge trousers? (laughs) (laughs) We we miss Ivan for sure and and Doug as well. So, all right. Well, everybody out there, thanks again for joining us. Please uh, join us again in two weeks for episode 46 for more fun and discussion about all things scale modeling. Remember to spend some time at your bench, enjoy your hobby, and uh, send us your feedback uh, to Plastic Posse Podcast at gmail.com. So to all of you out there in the posse, I guess there's only one thing left to say. Yee-haw! Very good. Nice. Nice.